Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not so good old days of World Championship. Wow. Right off the bat. Gonna be one of those nights. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good-old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by the most suspicious man to not actually do anything evil, Alec Bridgen. Well, that you know of, sure. (laughs) Just don't play Among Us, Al. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Fair (laughs) enough. How's it going tonight? Good. How's it going with you? Going good. Um, I have had another fairly easy prep session, which had me all nervous that I had missed doing something. Mm-hmm. I, I think I will oddly be relieved when we're back on the episodes where I take the majority of the show notes. <laughs> but my show notes are back to like five pages instead of nine. Yeah. <laughs> and mine are back to like, you know, 35 instead of, I think I'm at like 17 this time. Oh, okay. That's just, I used a lot of page breaks. I don't actually have that, that much. <laughs> really big font, you know, easy to read. Tonight, we are going back to the movies. Last month, we took a look at Diamond Dallas Page in the 1999 film First Daughter and found him, shall we say, underutilized. Yeah, to say the least. But he wasn't the only WCW wrestler to be featured Mm -hmm. in a film in 1999, or even the only former world champion. Yeah. No, fellow former world champ Goldberg was also uh, outside the ring for something other than a hardcore match in Universal Soldier, The Return. Universal Soldier, The Return is the 1999 sequel to 1992's Universal Soldier. The original film starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, Dolph Lundgren, Hallie Walker, Ralph Muller, and Jerry Orbach told the story of deceased Vietnam veteran Luke Devereaux, who was brought back to life as an augmented regenerating soldier called a Universal Soldier, Unisol for short, then regained his memories just in time to team up with a spunky reporter to stop fellow Unisol and former commanding officer Andrew Scott, who'd surprisingly gone completely bonkers after originally dying in Vietnam after having gone completely bonkers. That's a a twist, yeah. (laughs) It was produced by Carol Co., a company that somehow managed to be in financial trouble despite having been responsible for the first three Rambo films, Total Recall, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It grossed $95 million off a budget of $23 million. Nice. Carol Co. remained in financial trouble, and by the time The Return was made, had gone bankrupt after its last-ditch attempt to resurrect itself, 1995's Cutthroat Island, bombed so big Ooh. that it apparently qualifies as a Guinness World Record. It, yeah, that's true. It does. It's sad because it's not even like a terrible movie. It's just a eh, okay movie, but it costs a lot of money because everything blows up all the time. Michael Bay before Michael Bay, is it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Universal Soldier The Return is not actually the first sequel in the franchise, nope. though. First, two TV movies were made in 1998. Universal Soldier 2, Brothers in Arms, and Universal Soldier 3, Unfinished Business albeit without the original stars. They were entirely ignored by The Return. Yes. Universal Soldier The Return, rated R, 
was reportedly filmed in Texas at the abandoned Superconducting Super Collider facility on a budget of somewhere between 22 and 45 million. It's unclear on various sources. Right. It grossed about 10.7 million, so whichever end of the estimate that we're at, it didn't do particularly well. No. It also didn't do particularly well on the review front, with a 5% tomato meter score and 24% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 4.2 rating on IMDb. For comparison, First Daughter, 1999, had a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 47% and an IMDb rating of 5.5, and Ready to Rumble had a Rotten Tomatoes audience rating of 52% and an IMDb score of 5.3. I'm not sure those people have actually watched Ready to Rumble. No. No. The Return stars Jean-Claude Van Damme as Luke Devereaux, Heidi Shantz as Aaron Young, Xander Berkeley as Dr. Dylan Kotner, Daniel Von Bargen as General Radford, Kiana Tom as Maggie, no last name. Yes. Never has a last name that I've found in the film. Nope. Karis Page Bryant as Hilary Devereaux. Apparently we've got a page in both movies now. Nice. Brent Hinckley as Squid. Michael Jai White as Seth and the Super Unisol. And of course, Bill Goldberg as Romeo. I dearly hope that after this movie, people regularly chanted as matches, wherefore art thou uh, Goldberg? Yeah. I don't know if Romeo has a good uh, flowing chant as Goldberg does. Romeo, Romeo. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think you make it work. Fair enough. It was directed by Mick Rogers and written by William Malone and John Fasano. Music was by Don Davis. And the director of photography was Mike Benson. Producers included Craig Baumgarten, Daniel Melnick, Adam Merrims, Richard G. Murphy, Michael Rockmill, Alan Shapiro, Bennett R. Spencer, and Jean-Claude Van Damme himself. So, will Goldberg's version of Featured be more featured than DDP's Featured? To find out, let's go to the movies. Take it away, Al. Alrighty. Begin with talking about Jean-Claude Van Damme, our star. The Muscles from Brussels is well known to any fan of 80s and 90s action films, of course. Around this time, however, his career was on a bit of a downslope, with films like Knock Off and Legionnaire not exactly doing well, whereupon he transitioned nicely, in nice air quotes there, to the directed video phase of his career, which includes two more Universal Soldier films, which he's back as a hero, which don't also jibe with this at all, by the way. <laughs> he's back to being a Unisol, which is a kind of big difference. Yeah, yeah. He since made a bit of a comeback, playing versions himself a couple of times, as well as doing a surprising amount of animated voice work. He was recently in the Kung Fu Panda sequels, and he was one of the bad guys in Minions 2. <laughs> okay, that was I was not expecting that one. Yeah, they basically cast every 80s, 90s action star they could to play the villains, and then gave them like four lines each, so it was a weird casting choice. Good day's work? Yeah, I suppose so. In fact, I think, I don't know if it's the last time together, because obviously they're in other films, but... I believe Dolph's also in it as well, so... Okay. Dolph wants to be in theaters at this point, so... Yeah. Good for him. Producers of Minions, if you would uh, like other people to come in and get paid millions of dollars for about one hour's work, I am I am available. I'm pretty sure Al uh, would also be available. I, I, I'm free, yeah. I mean, we have a good uh, long, long-standing rivalry that we could mimic in voice acting work, right? Absolutely. Okay. Heidi Fonz as the reporter Aaron has a fairly small resume, but did manage to appear in a number of notable films of the 90s, including Virtuosity, Seven, 
Kiss the Girls, and The Truman Show. Oh, hey, pretty good resume there, actually. Yeah, yeah. She's never like a major character, but she's in all of them. That's uh, cool. Hey, that's I can't say that I was in Seven in The Truman Show. and all Yeah, that. absolutely. As a fun bonus, she was a guest star on Time Cop, the series, which did not include Van Damme, even though he's in the movie it's based off of. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Life full of weird coincidences like that. Yeah. Michael Jai White, of course, playing Seth. The actress slash martial artist has actually worked a lot more in the last two decades than Van Damme himself. Hmm. Just saying a lot, because Van Damme made a lot of movies between like 2000 and like 2017. At this point, he's hot of such films as Spawn and going to fill an entire streaming service worth of director video fare like Undisputed 2, Blood and Bone, and Never Back Down 2. Okay. Lots of sequels. Weird bonus, he's uncredited as a soldier in the original Universe of Soldier. And I think they might use that footage again in this movie. Right. But they don't like, it's such a minor thing. It's weird that they got him seemingly by accident back again and yeah. did nothing with it. He'd gotten like big between the two films kind of. Yeah. So they were like, oh, hey, now we can use this guy as a starring role instead of random scene filler. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Dana Von Barkin is a typical that guy actor, meaning he's always, oh, that guy in that thing, you know, you never remember his character name, but you've seen him in everything. He always played generals, policemen, and other such authority figures just because of his general demeanor and his way. He has a good look for it. Yes. He looks very official. He's played such roles in films as Basic Instinct, Crimson Tide. Oh, okay. Rising Sun, and the film Truman, not because he was a Truman show, <laughs> which he played General Douglas MacArthur. Oh, okay. Most people would probably know him. He had a recurring role on Malcolm in the Middle, where he's running the military school the older brother was sent to. Oh, okay. I believe he has an eye patch as well. <laughs> he's a very gritty character. And as a that guy, he appeared in Law and Order three different times. So we have two Law and Order actors in uh in this series so far. Yeah. There's Jerry Orbach's in the first film. Admittedly, he's slightly more famous on Law and Order than this guy. Right, so. right, yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh then of course we have the reason we're watching this movie, which is Bill Goldberg. Arguably at the peak of his career at this point, he's already been a two time champion WCW. Mind you, not a world champion. He's had multiple championships. Right. To clarify. It's one of those weird stats. I think we'll talk about it more as a series, podcast series that goes on. It's weird that he's a one-time world champion. You think of him as this famous world champion. It's company. bizarre. Yeah, he has one world title run, to my recollection, with WCW, but it's super famous. Yeah. And it's quite long. Yeah, it's June to December. Yeah. I mean, DDP has three world title runs, but I think combined, they don't last as long as Goldberg's. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. Curiously, uh, the same year this came out, there's a bunch of wrestlers appeared in the show Arliss. Oh, right. Which came up on our previous episode on Road Wild, because Arliss come, is part of the build-up to the famous <sighs> Dennis rodman Randy Savage match. Yeah, so that happens in 99. Goldberg's actually not on that episode, but he's on Arliss three years later. How weird. Yeah. Just like, I, hey, guys, I didn't get to do it when you came around last time. Can I be on now? Can I be on now? Can I? Can I? <laughs> I mean, he's obviously next, right? Yeah, I was going to say it. <laughs> yeah. In films, he's done, done such directed video work as Half Past Dead 2. <laughs> you may have seen it before. I, I don't think it'll come up because it's much later, but it's a interesting movie. Yes. Santa Slay, where even though he's Jewish, he plays Santa Claus. Oh, God, that one. Yeah. Yep. And, of course, the remake of The Longest Yard features a number of wrestlers, including Steve Austin and Kevin Nash. Okay. Fittingly, he'd also be a recurring guest star on the TV show The Goldbergs. Fair enough. 
Sadly, not about him. I, I would actually watch that show. Oh my gosh, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, like sitcom about Goldberg and his and his family. Yes. Every episode ends with him spearing someone through a door or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the, like that would be among the greatest sitcoms of all time. <laughs> oh, they did the sitcom thing in the intro where the person is doing something, and they turn and look at the camera when their name appears. He just he, in the back, he headbutts a locker, and then turns to stare at the camera. Yeah. <laughs> I would watch that show. He does the Dick Van Dyke intro, but when he's approaching the stool that he's supposed to trip over, instead he leaps over it and steers somebody. Yeah. Or yeah. does the sidekick to knock someone into it. There you go. <laughs> Getting to the director and writers, we have Mick Rogers. This is actually his only directing credit. However, he has a very long history of film, working as a stuntman and stunt coordinator. Okay, I can see that. This is pretty action-heavy. I'm a little surprised this is his only directing credit. This is this is not a great film, slight spoilers, but right. it's not, like, absolutely awful. I've seen many worse films oh, yeah, yeah. by directors who have gone on to do many, many other films right. and really shouldn't have. <laughs> so, I mean, when you talk about one-time directors, or one or two-time, maybe three-time directors, there's usually a story, like, why they only made X number of movies. William Peter Blatty wrote The Exorcist, hated Exodus 2 so much that he directed Exodus 3 and another film bases on book just to make sure no one screwed it up. So that's why he stopped it too. Fair enough. Uh, Mick Rogers' case, I'm guessing it's probably not really one to do because he basically, even around the, while he's doing this, he's doing stunt work and stunt coordinator work. That's his main interest. And yeah. it was just like, oh, maybe I'll try it or yeah. Well, that, that was, that was there's, there's a reason why he's him and not someone else is directing as well. Oh, okay. His resume includes films as far back as 1978, The Return of Captain Nemo, which oh, we watched okay. during when lockdown started on YouTube. Yep. Steven Spielberg's 1941. And Megaforce, a truly yes! classic movie. <laughs> I hope he was responsible for the bikes that shot like pink and green smoke behind them. Hope that was him. Oh my gosh. I hope he was not responsible for the green screen flying sequence at the end of oh, the movie. Oh, no, no. <laughs> Just like, I'm going to... Everyone avoids the, the blame loop. on that one. In more recent work includes films as Iron Man. Oh, wow. Hacksaw Ridge. Okay. And Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Okay. Hey, good, good job, buddy. <laughs> he was a stunt coordinator in 1998's Payback, starring Will Gibson. Okay. Good film. And his first gig after this was doing a stunt advisor on The Patriot, also starring Mel Gibson. Fair enough. To connect things further to WCW, he did stunts as a stuntman on 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Oh, okay. A fairly unnotable film to us, except there is a famous backstage bit they do where world champion David Arquette is showing off his belt to his wife. Yep. And her co-star, Kurt Russell, walks by, looks at Arquette with the belt and laughs and walks off. <laughs> Which is really how you build a world champion. Get a famous person to laugh at the idea that he's a champion. Yeah. That's interesting. That guy has had quite a career as a stunt coordinator, oh, actually. Yeah. That's um that's pretty impressive work. The thing with doing stunt work too is if you can do it well long enough, you know, avoid it, hopefully avoid real injuries and everything like that, you eventually have a resume where you can go, Hey, I worked on fifty films. I can help you do your stunts. You can be off of doing the actual stunts. Yeah. And train people to do the stunts that you've done a million times already. Yeah. That happens a lot with stunt advisors. It's a good gig. Oh, yeah. I mean, hey, that more power to him on that. That sounds like he managed uh, quite a career for himself. Yeah, he's still working steady. All right. On the writing front, first, we have William Malone. Conversely, he has a lot of directing credits and only a few writing credits. Huh. His directing credits include Fear.com, 
Ooh. And he directed 1999's House of the Haunting Hill, which eh, not my favorite. Okay. I can see why he doesn't have many writing credits as well, because um, <laughs> writing is not this movie's strong suit. <laughs> right. Apparently, there was a conflict between him and the producer, which is why he's not directing the movie. Okay. Then we have John Fasano, who sadly passed away in 2014. He directed a trio of cult classics in the 80s, including Zombie Nightmare, which most people know from Mystery Science Theater 3000, with Adam West in it. Rock and Roll Nightmare, which most people know from Rift Tracks, the terrible movie starring John Michael Thor. Yes, yes. And Black Roses. That alone is a weird duo because... So Rock and Roll Nightmare, to be brief, is a movie about a rock star who's got to fight demons. Black Roses is about demon-possessed rock stars trying to kill people. Okay, so you could do like them in sequence somehow. Yeah. You know, either it's a dark ending if you do the one about fighting demons, and then the one about being possessed by demons next, uh-huh. or it's a, a you know redemption story if you yeah. reverse them. <laughs> also, there's like three rock and roll horror movies like that, and he made most of them. Okay, yeah, corner the market on that, I suppose. Yeah, I, I kind of just want to sit here and discuss that Goldberg sitcom some more rather than <laughs> moving on to the rest of it. But I guess we better get on with it. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The film begins showing us the TriStar company logo, which I know I wouldn't highlight production company logos, but I legit have not seen that logo in decades. It's It's been a long time. I'm yeah. shocked. Yeah. It brings like so many memories. A slow panning shot introduces us to the military base, aka the setting for 80% of the film, pretty much. Yeah. They save a lot of money by being inside. Was it just me or did this intro feel very TV movie? Yeah, it does. It's like, you know, you get this slow camera pan over the facility, which, by the way, shows a lot of explosive and hazardous chemicals stored near things that they probably shouldn't be stored near. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just done in such a way that it doesn't feel like a Hollywood film. It feels like a TV film. Mm-hmm. It slowly comes down some stairs before stopping on a random body at T-Pose. Credits. The credits are so basic, too. It's just like yeah. the green text on a black screen thing. Noises as it types the text on screen. Yeah. And no graphics, no nothing. I admittedly I'm a little bit spoiled after the like amazing intros of Marvel movies sure. recently, but still I, I feel like normally there's a little bit more effort than this put into right. credits. Again, very TV movie. Mm-hmm. After the credit, we are suddenly thrust into a jet ski chase, with Van Damme's Luke Devereaux and Keanu James's Maggie being pursued by a bunch of bad guys in a swamp. I don't think of Texas as a very swampy place, but I guess there's enough places. Maybe they went off site for this one, or yeah. This is also a very subtle hint of what the movie is going to be like, in the sense that we don't see the intro to set up why this is happening. They go, "Oh, let's just jump right into the action." Yes, and not explain anything. Yes. So basically, the action is most important thing in the movie. Plot is there, I guess, if you want to care about it, but. It's just jumping in jet skis at this point. There's lots of shooting and lots of early new metal. Oh, God, yeah. Wake up, time to die, our actual lyrics. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's it's... good advice, though. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Maggie and Luke, they jump off a sort of a bit of land that's in the swamp. A nice even jump. It's clearly a ramp there, obviously. Right, yeah. And they land really fine. One of the two Unisol guys chasing them crashes, even though he does the exact same jump they do. He decides to like give up halfway and jumps <laughs> off. It's weird. He's like, ah, like he's got to like, hit, but you didn't hit anything. He didn't like jump and like hit a branch or anything. He just decided I can't stay on jet ski and the turns jump anymore. Yeah. 
which isn't a good sign of your unstoppable super soldiers if that takes them out. Very true. They did this whole bit where they go from vehicle to vehicle, which is to give credit to the stunt people. And again, this is what you get when you hire a stunt guy to direct a movie. They did a good bit where they are on the jet ski, then they end up crashing into a, into a fan boat, taking with a fan boat. And then they get on another boat after they crash the fan boat. Yeah. It's a good progression of vehicles here, nicely. On the speedboat, they managed to knock one of the intercellular guys off, who managed to grab the rope that I guess is hanging off the back of the boat for some reason. I'm sure there's something that happens to cause that, but I can't remember what. Right. But he's thrown backwards off, and he grabs the rope. He proceeds to jet ski without jet skis. Which uh, it did look very cool. Yeah. That's also your first hint that this isn't really the serious chasing that they're implying it is, because they stop and Maggie points out to him that the guy is jet skiing, and they, they seem impressed by how he did that. Yeah, yeah. He's actually pretty good. They then cut the rope, and he crashes. <laughs> I'm not sure if it'd, be the, if it'd be so easy to just quickly cut through a rope like that, but see, while it's pulled taut like that. Pro- probably not, but, you know, that that's on the low end of action oh, yeah. movie exaggeration, so we'll, true, we'll accept true it. They end up driving on to land, which initially got my hopes up, because I love living that die, where they cross little pieces of land in Louisiana, but <laughs> sadly, they just stop going to the boat. They start running through the forest, and somehow Romeo, Goldberg's character, grabs Maggie, which means he somehow got way ahead of the chase for this to happen. We don't see him at all in the chase. Yeah, so, so I think the idea is that he predicted where they were going to go or something, maybe. Maybe, which yeah. would be pretty impressive given how much has happened in the five minutes of the chase scene. Though he does repeatedly later on show up in people's way. <laughs> True. During their escape, so maybe that's just an ability of his. Yes. Yeah, so he grabs Maggie, hides her to the tree, and rips her blouse open because bad guy. Yeah. I do want to note, uh, Goldberg as Romeo makes his first appearance at about six minutes into the movie, so quite a bit quicker than DDP, I believe. And he gets dialogue right away, so definitely quite a bit quicker than DDP. Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) I do wonder, as we learn more about this, one, why he's programmed to be like this? That's what I was going to ask, because I haven't seen the original Universal Soldier, as we mentioned at yeah. the end of last episode. So I I genuinely don't know. Like, the Unisol units in the first film, when they're under control, before, like, Devereaux starts getting his memories back right. and everything, are they pretty emotionless types? Yeah. Or Okay, so, because in this film, it feels like most of them act like that, but then Goldberg... Has the has a ton of personality. Right. They like have a full thing for him. So that that's which weird. could have been a whole plot point, but it's just not. Yeah, it's it feels like they're doing something with this, but then, like I said, they're not. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really like they went in and punched up his dialogue because he's the bigger of notable like character in this movie, but then didn't didn't do it for the rest of the Unisols. Almost none of them have any dialogue. Yeah, and it's funny because, I mean, no offense to Goldberg, and he actually, he has a ton of charisma and does a fair job with his lines and everything in the film, but if I'm thinking of a person to punch up the dialogue for, I probably don't think the person who's not actually an actor. Right, right. (laughs) Like, you would think, oh, we're bringing in this big beefy guy, we should have him not have to talk. Right. (laughs) But... Apparently, they were cool with it, so okay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah it, it doesn't jive with the rest of the plot, though, because like he, he's somehow his own personality, because they, they reference it later, mm-hmm. is firmly implanted, even though the whole idea is that they're controlled by everything. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, uh, Luke realizes that she's gone and comes back and fights Romeo. 
Luke manages to get the gun, which he took off the Unisol, and shoot him. Gobert, before that, by the way, does his big roaring scream like he's getting ready to fight somebody. Yes. Or he's immediately shot in the chest and launched back about 10 feet. Uh, it's like a rocket-propelled grenade type of thing that they've got. Yes. Yeah. And it was it's the first and certainly not last of these films' cartoon-like effects. Yeah. Definitely a tonal disconnect at times in this film. There's, there's one scene, notably, that, that we'll bring up later. I'm sure. Yes, for sure, yeah. So Luke goes to free Maggie, but he's he, because he is a man, of course, and especially a man in the 90s film, is distracted by staring at her boobs long enough to not free her and have Romeo show up. Romeo at this point has a sort of burn wound in his chest. It's not They don't go super gory at this point, but it's clear that he was shot and actually legitimately wounded. Yeah. That's what they're going for. This, fortunately, is enough distraction for Luke, who was grabbed by the other Unisols who were chasing him. To be fair, they were actually pursuing him, so he shouldn't have a lot of time to right, yeah. do it anyway. His, his tactical error, he shouldn't have uh, delayed. Correct, yes. Yeah, so now the, all the nondescript Unisol guys have knocked him down, and they are holding him in a small puddle that's trying to drown him Bruce Willis style. This is stopped, however, by a voice, which we learn is Seth, that tells him to stand down and that the exercise is over. Yep, this is all a training exercise. Hope you enjoyed this scene that didn't really matter for the most part of the plot. I mean, it sets up the characters, but if you walked in the movie late, you would still pretty much have the whole idea of the movie without the scene. Yeah, it would be more justified if the cause of the problems was Romeo and a couple of the other Unisols going rogue Mm -hmm. without some external influence. Because this does show like they are particularly aggressive against Luke at times. Yes, yeah. But um, because that's not what happens, it does feel like, okay, you, you could have maybe trimmed this a little bit because it doesn't seem to really uh, matter that much in the long right. run. Or if something, yeah, something happened in the scene to set this up, like a wound is done to them and that wouldn't fix it, it caused right. a problem or something, yeah. As, as we said, directed by a stunt coordinator, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are now back at the base and Luke and Maggie are impressed by the Unisol's performance, even if they were a bit dangerous, which, yeah. So the training exercise thing explains why they were firing machine guns everywhere, but also hitting nobody. Yeah, I think Seth, at some point, the computer says something like, uh, did I get too close on the live fire test? And Luke kind of passes it off. Right. We first meet Xander Berkeley's Dylan, who is the main scientist running the assault program, who proceeds to casually drop the biggest, oddest plot point of the film. <laughs> so... Luke is, in fact, the same Luke from the first film, not counting two and three, as mentioned, which are non-canon. He's apparently had all his Unisol tech removed, but is also alive. Yes. So again, the plot of these movies is that they take dead soldiers, put stuff in them, and that makes them come back to life. So taking all stuff back out of them would make them dead. Yes, you would normally think so, but apparently they have literally invented resurrection. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah. Bear that in mind. <laughs> yes, it is important later. At the base, we see the Unisols being treated, which triggers a 20 to 30 second random flashback scene where Luke looks at him getting a shot and quickly does this little slideshow where he sees when Dolph goes crazy at killing people, then he's got to fight him and all that. And then that's over with. Yeah. Just to remind you that in case you hadn't got it, he's this character from the other movie. I, I kind of liked that sequence if they had done anything further with it. Right. Like, this sequence, I think, for me, was pretty well done. Because I think Van Damme actually does a a nice little, like, 
not so much disturbed as just like a slight disorientation, like it really is all flashing through his head at that right, moment. Yeah. And it's not so much giving you a good coverage of what happened to the previous film as showing a connection between him and the Unisol units that okay. he still remembers what it was like to be that. Yeah, I don't think this badly shot or no. posed or anything. It's just a really abrupt thing just happened and then never happened again. Right, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of things in this film that if they'd done more with them, I feel like we're repeating our comments from the last film we watched, but there's a lot of things in this film that if they'd done more with them, they'd be really good. Correct. But they do something once, and so it it's just like is this weird... Things, ha- things happen, yeah, yeah, and they don't happen anymore. Yeah. We casually cut to a random scientist speculating that one of them might have been damaged, who on cue goes ballistic and attacks. So our first match is Unisol Delta versus Random Tech and Luke Devereaux. The referee for this match is Dr. Dylan Kotner. Yeah. Delta chokes the tech and chucks him through a window, then goes for Kotner. Devereaux knocks him away from Kotner, and other Unisols stand up, but Seth orders them to stand down, saying that Delta is malfunctioning. Delta gets Devereaux in a bear hug because even in movies, I must suffer. <laughs> Devereaux escapes with a near clap in a very pro wrestling manner, right? knocking the Unisol out apparently via implant failure. I'd have to say uh, kudos to Van Damme in this and several other fight scenes in this movie for being willing to clearly be on the losing end of the fight until he manages to turn it around. Right, yeah. He does a good job in this film of playing a brave but overmatched character, Mm -hmm. which is not really uh, a common thing for 90s action stars. Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I I, got to compliment him on that. I only have one issue with that, but that's um, regard to stuff that happens later, but as a whole, I do really like that, yeah. Because they're showing this, that his apparently miraculous transition from Unisol to human has changed him, and he's not the same as them. He is weaker than when he was a Unisol. He is is human again, yeah. Mm -hmm. The thing I'm confused about in this section is, so I don't know what exactly makes Delta go ballistic. Yeah, there's some sort of, like, warning showing about his implant or something, his control implant or something. Yeah. So I think it is meant to be something along the lines of what you suggested, that something during the bayou chase damaged his implant and okay. it goes slightly out of control. It's, it's just funny the way it's framed too. The guy's like, Oh, I think this might be wrong. And then he immediately jumps out and starts attacking. You think <laughs> the last bit of this is, was a little weird. You saw Delta that does the fight scene. His, that guy is covered in like burn scars. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was burn scars. Like it was supposed to be an actual character thing or if it was like an eczema condition or something like yeah, the actual it, it, actor had or fairly sure this is like an, that's with an actor thing. So I'm not like judging the guy for having that, obviously, but the whole plot of this is that they put him in this, this thing, spray him with gas, their body heals up, regenerate completely. Yeah. I think maybe they figured you will just take it as the thing that we're going to regenerate. The only issue maybe is that soldier does show up a couple other times in the movie mm-hmm. and still shows that because yeah. obviously if the guy actually had that skin condition, then sure. it, it would still be there. It does throw you just a, li- just a little bit, not a lot. I mean, and kudos to them for not letting that guide their casting decisions and oh, cutting yeah. the guy out of a role. But it's one of those things where you maybe want them to make some minor nod to it, like that it's not able to correct for scars that were pre-existing or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. But it just it's a little thing like that where you notice it, you're like, oh, that's that's weird. It'd be like, you know, if you're watching a movie set in like the 18th century and someone has braces, you'd be like, huh, that's weird. It would it doesn't necessarily ruin the movie in any way, but you're mm-hmm. like, it's something you'd notice and then you can't not notice. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
So Luca is supposed to go to a meeting with Dylan after this happens, but he breaks away to talk to his daughter and Seth, who has a big dome screen attached to a giant block of metal on the wall. It's a really odd design for a supercomputer. It's it's odd, but I I kind of liked it. I don't know. It, it looks sciency, and that's all right. you really need. He's like a giant Rubik's cube in a floating in a dome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's supposed to be literal or just like a visual representation. Probably just a visual. Yeah, but it's just weird that superhero is just is this bracketed into this wall like this huge thing. He makes a point of saying to Seth, who of course knows this, that Seth monitors everything happening during the training exercise. It's another example of a scene that would be neat if it amounted to much of anything in the film. Seth is tutoring the daughter in her homework. And so you get a little bit of like, oh, there's a relationship between the computer and this family, but they don't really do much with that. A little bit with that, but not much right, in the yeah. film. It's a, it's a way to use the characters, but ultimately, yeah, this interaction doesn't really affect the rest of the movie at all. Yeah. So the actual meeting he's going to is led by General Radford, who is in charge of their funding. He's speaking to Dylan, Luke, and Maggie, explaining that their product is canceled due to defense spending cuts. <laughs> cuts in defense spending? This truly is science fiction. <laughs> but, okay, yeah. Can, can we analyze for a moment how in the world it is possible that this program, of all programs, could get cut? Right, okay. Let's just, let's just catalog the scientific advances made by this program. Okay. Okay. Just just off the top of my head, we have a hyper-advanced, actually possibly sentient supercomputer. Yes. We have regeneration booths, which yes. we actually do see later in the movie can work on non-unisols. Correct, yes. We have hyper-advanced body armor that in this meeting they state makes the soldiers bulletproof. Yes. We have these uh, miniaturized rifles that are really advanced and powerful and feature apparently potentially limitless supplies of rocket propelled grenades. Yes. I should correct myself. I think we do see one run out of ammo at some point in the film, but they seem to carry a lot of ammo. They do, yes. And then, uh, let's see, um, am I missing anything? Oh, yeah, resurrection. Yes, that's true, yes. (laughs) I get, okay, like, I get someone would have justifiable problems with the idea that you are taking corpses reanimating them and making them soldiers to fight, especially as we're on shaky ground on how sentient these resulting creatures actually are. Yeah. You know, do they have self-determination? Should they be allowed to use that? Mm-hmm. There's there's justifiable debates to be held there, and I think the Unisol program is probably not on the good moral ground on it. Correct. But even aside from that, you might say, okay, we're shutting this project down, but can you take all of this gear, literally all of it, including Seth, and um, come work for us in the medical field, yeah, or in the weapons development field, or in the body armor development field, because you clearly have a talent for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very odd that that this this is of all the things that's the issue. They're like, oh, well, we got we got to shut this down. We got to build a new new jet or something. That's more important than this. In his defense, uh, no pun intended, Tim Rafford explains that quote top brass were never really on board. It reminds them of what happened in the last official film. Maggie then casually dunks on the original Unisols while sitting right next to Luke. That's true. <laughs> she says something like uh, comparing the original Unisols to the current one, she's comparing like a uh, saw to like a laser cutting tool or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Like a laser guide scalpel or something. And Luke's just th- sitting there like, hey, that was me. <laughs> also, a uh, weird bit in it. Radford is clearly familiar with the original Unisol project. 
he tells all about the problems with it and everything like that. But Cotner has to inform him that Luke Devereaux was one of the original Unisol. Yeah. Which you would think would have been mentioned in his briefing. <laughs> yeah. So wait, who's this, who's this Luke guy you have here? Oh, yeah. He used to be dead. Now he's alive again. Yeah. Any questions? Yeah, several questions. Thankfully, Luke is very polite and ignores Maggie, just sort of again dunking on his, his abilities and, and, his, and his dead comrades. And he talks about how tough the Unisols are, explaining how they're like two and a half times stronger than any human and such and such. And Maggie also mentioned the body armor we talked about. Yeah. Which, the only time at this point we've seen the body armor used was when Romy was wearing it and shot with the rifle, whereupon the whole middle was just gone. Yeah, again, I think that the implication is that the guns have two types of rounds in them. They have normal bullets, but then they also have like a, a rocket-propelled grenade kind of function. So I think it's the latter that he gets shot with. Okay. But it'd be nice if you had a scene where like they tried to shoot him and it did nothing. Before this died. point, yeah. You, we, get, we get a few of those later on, but right, right. it'd be nice if we had seen that during the chase, yeah. Mm-hmm. The general then nicely sets Luke up for a, a one-liner about not sending young Americans to die on the battlefield. Which he delivers beautifully in his very American accent, <laughs> USA. The muscles from Brussels is like, I wish you send American young Americans to die. Like, it's a nice line and everything. And, and you know, the general clearly sets that up. <laughs> but yeah, it's just funny with his accent saying that. I think the Luke Devereaux character is supposed to be um, from Louisiana or something, isn't oh. he? So they're trying to use that to justify an accent, I guess. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I'm not sure that's fair enough, but yeah. Well, yeah. For this movie, of all the things, the question that's, yeah. While this is going on, we cut to an outside shot where Seth, in his weird globe-like body, is looking through the window and wanting anything happen. After they leave, Dylan goes to the room where Seth was watching him, and Seth questions about what happened in the meeting. He plays coy about it, but Seth apparently is monitoring his, like, his heartbeat and like his galvanic skin response. I think. Yeah, I don't know if that's really a thing you monitor. Um, it's used. It's one of the things for lie detectors, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, I believe it requires you to actually have something pressed onto the skin. But you know, oh, okay, this is super science, so whatever. Maybe it's like the he sees like the Matrix. He sees everything like that. I don't know. <laughs> Conveniently, text on screen appears as after Dylan leaves, Seth is wondering to himself why he'd have the skin response. And he tells him the fourth response, which is that he's lying. Yes. Because he openly asks him about the meeting and goes, he's, oh, yeah, great, better than ever. Seth then proceeds to activate Romeo, saying he has a job for him. Yeah, Seth goes from zero to supervillain in 1.5 seconds. Yes. So, yeah, maybe this project should be scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> we again cut to Luke's house. We learn that Luke's wife, the reporter from the first film, is dead. She was actually too busy doing the show The Profiler to be in this movie. It's nice that he sort of sits down and looks at all the pictures he has of her and him together, though. Like the one picture that's their wedding photo or yes, something. Correct. Yeah. I think a lot of the problems with this movie's flow are actually in some part related to not being able to get that uh, actress back. Right. And what they decided to do as a result. Yeah. It's, it's good that they address why that character's not in the movie. I wish they had found some other excuse other than she's dead. Because yes. I always have a problem when you do a several years later sequel to a film and decide, oh, no, that happy ending that you got wasn't actually a happy ending. Yeah. That person's actually dead. That person's actually a murderer. That person's this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's that's always a little bit bad. So she's a reporter. You could easily, that, that handles high profile and, you know, high intensity investigations and stuff, obviously, from the mm-hmm. first film. 
So you could easily have said, oh, she's off doing war reporting during the events of this movie or something yeah, like that. You could, you yep. could pick a conflict that's happening in 99 and say that's what, it was, what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any, or she's in Washington, D.C., you know, what, whatever. You, you could literally say she's off covering unrest in, in Moscow. That's pretty much always a headline. <laughs> oh, and again, Luke Devereaux, the husband of this dead woman, works for a place that has cured death. You would think they could have done something about this. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, they were able to bring him back as a unisole, then take the implants out, and voila, he's alive. Mm -hmm. This was done by Dr. Dylan Kotner, who he currently works for. Uh You would think he could have said, hey, could you help my wife? Can you at least, yeah. It'd be fine if they like addressed it and said, you know, she said not to, or the process wasn't perfected until after she was gone. Right. Like he was living as a part unisol up until that point. Yeah. I don't know. But it's just, it's one of those little details. You're like, oh, good. We wrote a way to get this character out of the movie because we can't bring the actress back. Hey, do we need to worry about the fact that that clashes with another plot point? No? Okay. <laughs> nah, we're good. Yeah. I mean, you you just need a line with like the, the daughter, for instance, going, like, why couldn't he he help mommy? And he could say, well, the process wasn't refined at this point. There was too many risks involved or something yeah. like that. Yeah, there's plenty of excuses they could give. They just don't give one. That's true. I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. <laughs> so we then cut back to the lab, where we see Seth is making more unisols. It's not clear he needs more unisols, by the way. He has a lot of them already, but... I guess there's just a bunch of bodies down in the basement. So I mean, you might as well, you know. And what's he going to do for the hours until his revolution, anyway? Yeah, fair enough. Play Minesweeper? Yeah. Incidentally, this uh, activity is witnessed by the same random scientist from the scene where Unisol Delta goes. Oh, was it the same guy? Yeah, same guy, yeah. Oh, okay. He's apparently the only one working all night at this facility. Poor guy. You'd think he would have gotten a day off after nearly getting choked to death. Instead of, you know, getting choked to death. Yes. <laughs> Like, much like the general, he nicely sets up Romeo this time for a quip where he asks, who's behind this? Whereupon Romeo grabs him, lifts him in the air, choking us. We are. <laughs> that guy had a very bad day. Yeah, right? Sudden Unisol attacks twice in one day? Come on. Yeah. If he'd survived, he would have one heck of a worker's comp claim. Mm-hmm. So we cut from the night where Seth is making all his Unisols and clearly leading some sort of revolt. We then cut to tomorrow afternoon. He's taking his sweet time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, so no one no one wondered why that random scientist isn't around? I mean, they clearly didn't care very much for his safety if uh, yeah. they kept him working th- that night after he was thrown through a plate glass window. Yeah, very true. But yeah, it's, it's very odd that like, it's not the next morning. It's three, it's something that says 3 p.m. I was writing my notes, but I literally written the next morning. I'm like, wait, it says 3 p.m., not 3, not like 8 a.m. Wow. So, on one hand, it means that Seth has more time realistically to do this, like to activate them, you know, set his programming in and arm them and everything. So, I get that. At the same time, it means a lot of stuff's happening and no one is noticing it for hours. This is a military race. Assumingly, it opens at, you know, 7, 8 a.m., I would hope. Yeah. People then in for hours and not noticing more Unisols than before. Like, even if you assume that he stopped all the let's create new Unisols activity once people were on site, at the very least, you would think they would be like, huh, there's like 25 more Unisols than there were the night before. Yeah, you know, there's probably a guy whose job is to check how many buys are in the fridge down there. Yeah, maybe it's that guy that got killed the night before. Maybe. If they, they just push all of the tasks on the based onto him, and then once he's gone, where, where, you know, where are they now? 
So this is where we first meet Erin. She is the reporter who is replacing the dead reporter wife slash girlfriend. For some reason, we needed a reporter character in this movie. <laughs> well, there was a reporter in the last one. Yeah. I'm really guessing that it was just like they had some scenes written for the original reporter character, found out that they didn't have that character. Mm-hmm. And rather than rewriting those scenes, decided, let's just keep those as they were, and we'll write a few new scenes to introduce a new reporter character we can just slot in. Yeah, the way the juicer definitely would require some new writing because, aside from a different person, so the whole idea here is that she's got supposed to have an interview with, I think it's with Dylan, maybe the general, I forget who she was supposed to be beating. But so she's a reporter who needs to get access to this facility and talk to people. Presumably, if she was married to Van Damme's Luke, she, she would just would, walk in, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Or you make it a point of saying, hey, I normally can come in, now you're not letting me. Right, yeah. What's weird about this as well, by the way, is. Um, she's talking like she's trying to get access. Yes. Like she's trying to convince them to let her in to interview somebody that she doesn't have an appointment to interview. Mm -hmm. But then she ends the conversation by telling the security guard to call such and such a person at the base. The security guard calls and says, oh, okay, they're ready for you. Or something to that effect. And just waves her through. And you're like, you had an appointment. You clearly had an appointment. Why were you spending all this time doing all these other excuses for why you could get into the base when you could have started with the one that you ended on of call this person. Here's my, here's my, here's my appointment card. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she just likes the challenge, of, I guess. <laughs> Inside, our heroes learn that Seth has made plans of his own, which involves locking down the building and digitally flipping off Dylan. Oh my gosh, that was so weird. Yeah. He, he does like a CG hand on the screen. And then turns it around and flips Dylan the bird. And you're like, <laughs> this is so comedic. Yeah. It's like, yeah, they, they ask him to like, uh, like undo the security uh, like stuff he does. And he's like, I could, but actually, and then it's F- you. And yeah. like the building appears on there. Yeah. Yeah. They like reboot him or something and to clear some, what they think at the time, I think is a virus or something mm-hmm. and, and get the base under control. But yeah. And it would have been a little bit more maybe shocking and less laugh-inducing if we hadn't already seen that he's clearly up to something. Right, right, yeah. Luke tries to get his daughter out of the room with Maggie during the chaos, and another random scientist is killed when he tries to turn off Seth. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the physics of this moment? Oh, sure, sure. I feel free. <laughs> yeah. So he goes over and finds, like, basically gigantic fuse box handles. Yeah, yeah. Right, that are, like, the power levers. And he grabs them. And Seth apparently, like, sends a lightning bolt through them yeah. to kill this guy. And you're like, I'm, I'm no electrician, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that that would be a massive wiring problem if, yeah. if that could work that way. Yes. My note was, why is this big plastic switch able to conduct electricity? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if that could happen, that would happen when you touch the switch, regardless of whether the computer was trying to lethally shock you or not. True, yeah. If there was active electricity, even low wattage or low voltage, and you're holding a handle, you would feel it, at very least you feel this vibration and heat. Yeah, you might be able to turn something that was a non-lethal shock into a lethal shock right. by pumping more electricity or, or changing the properties of it or something. But you wouldn't be, like, there would, there would always have been something there. Right. You would know yeah. that you have set up a dangerous fault in the system. <laughs> It would make slightly more sense. It'd also be a little sillier, I suppose. If it was like a big plug you tried to pull. Like if the plug's halfway out, the metal part's exposed, and then... Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe. There's things about like stun guns where they have 
two different phases. One's higher to make sure it makes the connection if it isn't quite in contact with skin or stuff like that. Yeah, so there's things that can work like that, but just not in the way this film shows at all. That's leaving aside what happens next. Right. Mm -hmm. Following that, Dylan tries to, again, try and talk it down and tries to do a different shutoff switch, which I guess is in front of Seth's big dome face. It's like something he has to type into the computer. Right, right. I think, yeah. Seth proceeds to shoot lightning from itself, (laughs) I guess. Dr. Cotner has to die somehow. Yes. We don't know how uh lightning bolt from nowhere yes yeah, so he's the lightning bolt from himself which kills dr connor and also the cameraman that our reporter brought with her yes i i'm wager that this is again like seth can just manipulate electricity however he wants because he's a computer not not the, like something they manually installed right it makes zero sense like yeah wires don't work that way no they do not <laughs> you if i just pumped more power into your wires in your house it would not just, like, decide to shoot a lightning bolt across the room. No. It might spark. Yeah, sure. It might, like, fail and spark, but it would spark into the closest thing that was conducting electricity, not literally across the room. Like, the entire room looks like it's metallic. Yeah. <laughs> there's tons of things it could go into before it hit this poor guy. Well, I know there's a comedic cliche with, uh, like, absent-minded professor-type characters where... They'll put on their coat and forget they take the hanger off. So maybe that's what it was. <laughs> sure. The hanger is it's just, it's a lighting rod. Just one of the many things that makes me wish Mythbusters was still on. <laughs> what is absolutely bizarre about all this is that around the same time, we start seeing that Unisols are marching through the facility mm-hmm. and starting to scare people uh, and, you know, waving guns around and stuff. Yeah. So you have a ready-made excuse for how Dr. Kotner and the cameraman and this random technician guy can die. Right. Bullets. Yes. Bullets work amazingly well against human bodies. But they decided that Seth has to be willing to kill Yeah, they have to, they decide that Seth has to himself kill them. Mm -hmm. And they had no ready-made explanation for how to do that. Yeah. Yes. Poor Zeta Berkeley has really bad luck with advanced supercomputers and robots. He is the father who was killed in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Oh, okay. You see him dead, he's being mimicked by the T-1000. Gotcha. To tell uh, tell him to come home. He's pale on the wall. Oh, okay. That's the, okay. He really should avoid that kind of situation. I guess so. On the plus side, this gives Van Damme a chance to actually kind of emote pretty well here. <laughs> he actually looks kind of sad seeing that this guy who literally brought him back from the dead is, you know, he's dead. Van Damme does have, genuinely have several good moments in this yeah. movie. Um, there's one really late film as well that he just has a great subtle display of emotion he, he I, what i like in this film he doesn't go overboard with no. these things but he definitely lets you know that his character has been impacted it's a case of doing enough to show that's happening without going big mm-hmm. at this point the only people left in the room are luke the reporter and the general they proceed to run out the door and then just stop right there in the hallway we're probably safe here doors <laughs> yeah. close you know what can that do besides shoot lightning again Luke explains there is a safety feature built into Seth that if a code is not put in every 24 hours, it will destroy the brain of him. Yeah. Not, it's like it's explosive or it's like a chemical or something, right? I think it's just like a shutdown termination code where okay. it actually just like erases his program or something okay, like so that. Okay, it's something like that. Because when, slight spoilers, Seth ends up in a unisole body late in the film, it's still clearly a danger to him. Okay. It's an intrinsic part of his programming that will destroy his code if... 
he doesn't receive the anti-termination code. Gotcha. So that gives our film a proper ticking clock scenario to keep track of. Devereaux says the two people that have the code are himself and Kotner. Right. Kotner's obviously now dead. Mm-hmm. So, I, so at first I was like, oh, well, why'd Seth kill Kotner then? But they have kind of a suggestion in there without actually making it explicit that Seth discovers the shutdown code when he's self-analyzing after killing Kotner. Mm. So it's it kind of is a big robot oops moment, but... He like kills Kotner and then like four seconds later is like, oh crap, I've got a shutdown code in me. And this guy was one of the ones that could that could stop it. Uh Luke, get back in here. <laughs> yeah. I guess my question is, why couldn't Seth turn off this kill switch? Yeah, I mean they do start showing him do this uh this calculation now. Right. But yeah. No, yeah, I mean they yeah, they they play up that he's trying all these random codes to find the right code. But I just been like, why couldn't he turn that off? They could have a line like, oh, Dylan put it so deep in his code that even Seth couldn't affect it or something, but they don't. It's a failure of screenplay writing if something that important is not obvious. So, at this point, Maggie and Luke's daughter have run off, trying to get out of the facility, escaping lockdown, where they run into Romeo, who proceeds to kill three random guards, a nice bit of burst fire with his machine gun. Yeah, they, like, open a door, and Romeo is there, and then they dodge to the right, the guards... Uh, are in this narrow hallway still lined up, so Romeo just burst fires them all down. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get a version of this moment at least 20 or so more times in the film. Yes. It's one of those weird cases where the way you get access to like real military stuff, like using bases and like gear and stuff, is you get their approval, like they sign off of the movie. So sometimes it makes sense. Like when you watch Trench Wars 2, where the military saves the day in one key part, <laughs> like, oh, that's why they sign off and then use their base. And use their aircraft carrier. But then movies like this, which are like super pro-military, but also the military are like the keystone cops as far as effectiveness. Yeah, they don't really do anything particularly valuable in the film. You could maybe argue that they're responsible for at least part of the good uh, ending by accident. But Luke is clearly more important. <laughs> Luke is clearly the main part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just weird that it's like, yay, military, but also please fall over like a... Like leaves in the wind yeah. when a unisol shows up. I guess if you if you want to look at it one way, all the unisols are also military guys. Mm-hmm. So they're being beaten, but they're being beaten by the military. Whereas if an outsider came in and beat them, that would be embarrassing. That, yeah, that would be embarrassing. But this is you know that, it's just technically special forces type of things beating our normal military guys. So we're okay with that. Oh, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Maggie, who we've seen have no luck against Romeo at all, decides to jump on his back and try to like throw to the the Try and do like a sleeper hold yeah, type of thing, yeah. Whereupon he sort of stumbles with her on, on his back, falls on his stomach, and slides down the stairs <laughs> like a bobsled. It's this is something that should be in Home Alone, not yeah. Universal Soldier. It's hilarious. I loved it. Yeah, he, but... he makes a weird like sort of grunt to like annoyed as happening. <laughs> yes, and then crashes into the wall. Oh my gosh, that's that is. A beautiful and amazingly stupid moment. Yeah. Surprisingly, that's not the only time I've seen a a pro wrestler use the sled in a movie. It's a WWE uh, Scooby-Doo movie. Oh, okay. See, that's where it makes sense. It's a cartoon, yeah. Yeah, it's a cartoon. This comedic moment also somehow hurts the daughter who is bumped, I guess, Yeah. during this and falls on the stairs. I watched this scene like five or six times. I still cannot figure out how they managed to make contact with her. Because they're sliding down the stairs. We get a clear view ahead, and I don't remember seeing her in that view at all. No. But somehow, 
Goldberg's body while going straight ahead and slamming headfirst into the wall and putting a comedic hole in the wall. Yeah. It looks like his foot somehow hits her, despite the fact that his foot is clearly behind him and she is not behind him. Right. But it's such a quick cut that we don't really see it in any detail. But yeah, she like falls down another set of stairs and then clonks her head on the ground hard. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, just like the tonal shifts in this scene are absolutely amazing. We have gunfire, death, comedy Goldberg sled, severe head trauma to a child. Yeah. How do you respond? Every response, I guess. (laughs) Yes. The film randomly then cuts to a sleazy blue-haired hacker named Squid. Oh, God. With whom Seth is somehow communicating with in secret. Apparently this has been going on like every Thursday or something like that. They've been in their hacker club or something. So I think the idea is, so the Squid character is like a really advanced hacker, so he maybe has a backdoor. It's implied that he used to work for the unit. Oh, it's stated that he used to work for him, yeah. Yeah. His big villain speech later on, he talks about that. Oh, oh my gosh. This guy. I I hated this character. Yeah. The moment he, before he even spoke, (laughs) I wanted him off my screen. The only reason I was okay with him being on my screen at all was that there was at least a, a minor chance that Jean-Claude Van Damme would punch this man in the balls repeatedly before the end of this movie. And I would have preferred for them to absolutely minimize this man's screen time outside of ball-punching moments. Fair enough. <laughs> and, but they didn't, unfortunately. I, I would characterize his, his overacting as acting like if Kramer from Seinfeld was a computer hacker— Except um, stripping out any possible humor from that situation. Right. Yeah, because there's versions of this kind of character that are much less skeezy and gross looking. He's just so overacted. Like he, That too, yeah. Yeah, I, that's the thing. It's like, I could have tolerated the character if he weren't... It sounds bad to criticize someone for being too into their role, but he was too into his role. Right. It's really... Like, it was the most annoying thing anytime he was on screen. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, he's not a, that major of a player, but yeah. Back at the base, Romeo appears again and is now going after Luke, apparently. Whereupon he kills even more soldiers. And again, we have a uh, door opens, Romeo is there, Luke and Aaron, who is escaping with him, dodge to the right, and Romeo opens fire on security guards that are in a narrow hallway, mowing all of them down with burst fire. The only difference between this scene and the Maggie and Hillary scene is that one guard does like manage to dodge the initial barrage, but then he pokes his head out and gets shot. Oh, okay. The framing and timing and everything is identical. They might as well have shot the scene once and just like green screened in. <laughs> <laughs> screened in Luke and Aaron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After they avoid this, they run away from Romeo. And managed to lock a door you can't get through. Also, they are hiding from him in a storage room for what Luke describes as chemical weapons. Mm-hmm. Not chemicals. No. Chemical weapons. Well, chemicals are in every hallway, Bob. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is also true, but yeah. Aaron justifiably asks why he brought her to a storage room for chemical weapons, and he says he had no choice. I would argue that the better question a reporter might be asking is, why is there a storage room for chemical weapons in your United States-associated military base? A fair question. The 1997 Chemical Weapons Convention, signed and ratified by the United States, among others, would seem to prohibit exactly that. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Aaron, instead of you know, thanking Luke for revealing this massive illegal weapons program, which is the scoop of the century, uh, instead is whining about being stuck inside while other reporters are reporting on something else. Yes. 
Speaking of which, we cut to the outside where we see a, a later reporter, in fact, getting the scoop that Aaron wanted. We see the military has formed a camp outside, finally catching on to all the stuff that's happening. It's not clear how much time has passed. They don't give us a timestamp. Yeah. Would it be nice to know that? It looks like it's getting on towards evening, maybe, because right. uh, it seems a little bit darker outside. Right. So that first sort of sets up the area covering the outside. There are some unisols that managed to break out of the base, and uh, Radford had explained that they can't just level the place because biochemical weapons are in there, which, um, <laughs> you know, again, so apparently the military knows that they have an illegal chemical weapons program in the base, which somewhat calls into question Luke's good guy status. I mean, once you're already playing God, what, what else can you do? Fair, fair enough, yeah. Radford also knows that the Unisols are bulletproof thanks to their body armor, but does not think to share this with his subordinates, so they fire lots of bullets into the escaping Unisols' body armor, which does, you know, not much of anything to them, and get killed. Yeah. Eventually, Goldberg managed to break in by extending into the middle door, which he can't break through. He decides to shoot his way through the wall, which apparently he can break through. <laughs> I guess so. The cement and stone, not as strong. Seth cheeks to him, explaining that He's not supposed to kill Luke because he has the code. He then proceeds to shoot at him with, with no care seemingly whatsoever about that. So our second match is Luke Devereaux and Aaron Young versus Romeo. The referee for this match is the Chemical Weapons. Yeah, yeah. Devereaux and Young fail to escape Romeo, so Devereaux attacks, kicking Romeo's gun away and landing several kicks. Romeo catches a punch and hurls him away, drawing a knife. Devereaux dodges slashes, but Romeo grabs him. Young gets the gun, and Devereaux asks for it, but dodges as Young instead figures out how to fire the rockets from it and lights Romeo on fire, and Devereaux's jacket too. Young and the smoldering Devereaux escape as Romeo puts himself out with very convenient fire retardant in his armor. Another invention that would be helpful for soldiers. Again, yes! Just like, pull a cable and your armor sprays lots of fire retardant and puts you out, yeah. Yeah. Goldberg... Really seems like he can't decide if he's robotic or has a personality. He'll alternate, you know, jokes like, I'm just warming up after he puts the fire out. Yeah. Uh, moments before he speaks very robotically about his objectives. True, yeah. It feels like not so much a problem for him as I think he just wasn't receiving good direction on no, yeah. what his character was. I mean, they did multiple takes and they like they like this take better, so they stuck with it even if it doesn't make sense with the rest of it. In the brief time that room is on fire, Luke and Aaron escape, climbing up a ladder getting to the roof of the building. They happen to look out and see a truck full of, I guess, paper shredding or something? I have no idea what that's supposed to be, but yeah. It's a bunch of big bags that I guess if you jump on them, you won't die. A, a, a bunch of conveniently soft material, which seems weird for something being carted away from a military installation. Yeah. I guess jumping on a big bag of machine guns would not be good for your back. Yes. Being the hero he is, Luke has to push Aaron to safety, and he jumps down after her. And I mean right after her. Yes, yeah. Literally seconds after he sees falling, he jumps as well. How is it two movies in a row that we have that happen, by the way? The ending of First Daughter as well. Oh, yeah. Like, shoves the daughter off the cliff and then jumps, like, when she would have landed on her. That really is an action movie cliche, isn't it? It's weird. It's a very specific action movie cliche. Yeah. Yeah. While that's happening, Romeo finally makes it to the roof, I guess climbing slower because he's Goldberg and... Wearing all that body armor, to be fair. Yes. He looks down at the truck and sees he can jump down as well. Luke managed to very quickly back the truck up, so he falls and splats on the ground like a cartoon character. He sees to get up, no selling this. Yes. Because you just saw, I guess. Yeah. Whereupon they put the truck forward again and hit him, knocking him down, and then park on top of him. 
Romeo, much like a exasperated Daffy Duck, is annoyed at this character that is doing these things to him, sort of angrily sighing and reaching around with his one hand, which is outside the tire, I guess to pull the gauge on the tire so that the tire is going to deflate. Yeah. I'm not sure that how that helps. Yeah, the most of the truck is on your body, man. Yeah. Having one arm slightly more free is not super helpful. Again, wild tonal shifts in, in this scene where you have them having a fight to the death with this guy, and then they get to the roof and have their, you know, semi-dramatic jump off into conveniently soft material. Then Romeo has this weirdly comedic fall, and you hear him go like, oh crap! <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're just like, I don't get why they're making this so funny. <laughs> this scene guest directed by Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like I, I simultaneously love these scenes and hate them because they're, they're great actually, but they are in the wrong movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, Goldborg here literally has a garbage truck sitting on him, tires on his chest. Mm-hmm. How durable are these things supposed to be again? <laughs> Yeah, there's there's a bit of a difference between bulletproof and able to handle the entire weight of a garbage truck sitting on you. Yes. And and sometimes you can punch and kick them and they'll actually react. But other times they'll just shrug off an RPG or a garbage truck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's bizarre. Yeah. Kick over in the face, for instance, he'll stumble back two feet. But if you shoot him several times with a regular gun, he'll be like, just look at you funny. Yeah. And in fairness... Most of the time when they shoot him with a regular gun, they shoot him specifically in the body armor rather than any part that's not protected. Right. Yeah. So you can argue that that's additional resistance from the body armor, maybe. But him plummeting off a building and clearly able to just shrug that completely off means that he should basically take any kick or punch from anyone in the movie other than maybe Seth and be fine. Mm-hmm. Like he should just no sell everything. Our heroes managed to run away from this to the front of the base where they are immediately shot at by the military, who thankfully are not good shots and don't kill them. Yeah, it's it's good timing for a joke with Luke having just claimed that soldiers aren't all mindless killing machines. Right, but yeah. why do the soldiers open fire at things that clearly are not unisols, or at least not unisols anymore? Right. Yeah. In Luke's case. It's a good question. Like, I don't know how they mix, mistook them. They, they wear very distinctive uniforms. <laughs> yes. Especially since... As we noted, they've already found out that bullets do not work on unisols. So if anything, if they're going to randomly fire anything, it should be grenades. Correct. <laughs> so they decide that they have to go in and set charges to sort of make the building collapse. They're not going to blow the building up, but they're going to sort of make it so other unisols can't get out. Right. So like, who can lead this mission to get in there and do it? I know. Let's get Luke to do it. The one guy who has the code that Seth needs. Yeah, that's fair enough. I do think they give at least a semi-reasonable explanation for why they need him, that he knows the base Mm -hmm. the most, uh, and there's not really anyone else they have available that is super familiar with the base. So I don't have a huge problem with this, but I do have a little bit of a problem. Like, it is a little bit of a bad tactical decision. If one day they brought it up, like, you know, should we bring him in because Seth literally wants this guy and went back and see him, but they don't don't address it. Of course, the soldiers underestimated Seth and how many troops he actually has, so it goes very poorly. Yes. Yes, it does. In fact, this is eerily similar to a bit in the movie The Rock, at least in 1996. Yeah. Where the military, save Sean Connor and Nick Cage in this case, are wiped up by the bad guys in the first attempt to get into the base. Yeah. Yeah. Just before they go in, Luke explains to the team 
that their rifles won't do anything to the Unisols. Oh, yes. He actually informs them of what Radford should have informed them of. Yeah. I guess maybe Radford just didn't believe them when they said the uniforms were bulletproof. So he explains, you know, these won't do anything but tick them off. So you need to use your grenade launchers. So, of course, for about 75% of the fight scene that follows where the military team gets slaughtered, they aren't using their grenade launchers. Right. Even Luke is repeatedly not using a grenade launcher for that fight scene. Yes. It's not even trying to avoid collateral damage because they explicitly want to blow up everything in that room. Correct, yes. Don't have him bring up that this is that important. It's like if you had Van Helsing say, now remember, nothing can hurt Dracula except for a stake to the heart, and then had them bring every weapon except for stakes to the heart and try that first before they moved on to it. It's like, yeah, just to make extra sure. Mm Mm-hmm. There's also a weird little bit of focus where they typically name the two rangers leading the mission with Luke. Yeah. Like they're important characters. But they're not even the last ones to die. No. No, they're not. Yeah. Also worth noting, one of the two lead rangers on the mission with Luke looks very similar to Ranger Ross, a WCW wrestler. He did, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Seth, he somehow shrunk his computer brain down and and implanted it into Chekhov's body, who just happens to be played by Michael J. White who was also doing the voice the entire time. Yeah. Strangely, my body has the voice that I've had this entire time. <laughs> yeah, it's really the question of, is that a coincidence? Yeah. Or does the chip you put in this guy's head change his vocal cords to make him talk the same way? Yeah, is it supposed to be emitting the Seth voice through his body? Yeah. Or is, yeah. He'd have to make an interesting mix of visual and audio with that, if that was the case. Mm-hmm. If he had like a weird, eerie, like tinny speaker quality of his voice. If you still did the computer effects with his voice. Yeah. 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 Like it's coming, because it, it's being projected, but through his mouth. So it's mm-hmm. the echo is different and stuff. Yeah. I could see them doing something. It's a little like too that, good yeah. for this movie, unfortunately, to try something like that. I love a couple things about this scene, by the way. Okay. One, Seth actually refers to himself as Super Unisol. He does, yeah. Which is just like, <laughs> oh, that's so wonderfully childish. Yeah. And then uh, he has a line when he's he's giving this big speech to his uh, assembled Unisols mm-hmm. about how they're going to beat humanity, which you would think some of the Unisols might decide to have a problem with since they, you know, were human. Yeah, yeah. They, these are, aren't all things that are actual computers. These are former humans. Correct. But he has this wonderful line. It's like, their fear and, and mortality will be their weakness. Yes, being able to be killed is is a heck of a weakness. You're right, Seth. Yeah, yeah. I will say Michael J. White with his real deep, rich, baritone sort of bass voice. He's very, he has a very measured delivery because he's playing a supercomputer. He he does a great job with yeah. this, yeah. So you give him these dialogues, it's not exactly great, it's not any material, but he does the best he can with his position. Absolutely, yeah. I, I do not fault his performance at all on this. I, I, w- I would compliment his performance through this entire film. He does an excellent job with doing this this computer that can almost be human, but not quite mm-hmm. uh, at various points. And um, he does a good job of portraying simulated emotion. Yeah, I'd say so. He's doing portrayal of emotion, but he's doing portrayal of emotion that intentionally looks slightly fake. Mm-hmm. That's an amazing thing to be able to do, actually. Yeah, I see that. He really does a good job with what they give him. What they give him is not great, but he, like you said, he makes the most of it, definitely. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of what's weird with the way the, the film plays out in a sequence. So yeah. we've seen Seth in the body, he gives a speech, and they sort of intersperse that with the big fight scene where all the rangers and soldiers are being killed by the unisol inside the building. Luke managed to get away, 
And then Luke, running through the hallway, stops and looks in the room. And they do this really slow pan around him shot to reveal what he's seeing, which is that Seth's old body, the, you know, the one built in the wall, is off. Right. And he's like, oh no, Seth's not there. I'm like, yeah, we saw that already. Yeah, it's it's why is it a surprise to us? We we were here. Yeah, it's like they should have reversed the order of these scenes. They have the reveal that Seth is already out of his old body, then the attack that's intended to destroy the base. The attack fails. Luke decides I'm gonna try and kill Seth in person. Yes, and he charges in, and the reveal again that Seth is no longer there. I get that Luke needs to yeah, learn yeah. that, but it's like it's a little weird how they put it together. Also. It's weird that Luke, okay, so number one, he hears the general asking for someone, anyone to check in and just doesn't. Oh, yeah, it's true. He just tosses the headset for no apparent reason. Then he manages to, despite the fact that we've seen that this base is guarded by Unisols, just get all the way to Seth's now defunct former core and then all the way back out with no problem or apparent yeah. further complications whatsoever, despite the fact that he is the one person that Seth wants. Well, to be fair, Seth has them all in a uh, in a meeting somewhere. I mean, meeting is the meeting is is scheduled until four thirty. Meetings are very important. To they cannot leave at four twenty five to go catch Luke. Right, that was the responsibility of the non meeting squad. Exactly. <laughs> Joke aside, I could see letting him get to where Seth's body was. Oh yeah, and then attack. Yeah, but yeah, but then back out. It's true. I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's where you. They kind of yada yada the way him being back out. Of yeah, there. I really thought that it'd be like, oh, he got to where Seth was thinking he could kill him. And now, like, he's going to turn around and two Unisols are going to be there or Romeo's going to be there or something. Yeah. But no, they just let him out. <laughs> yeah, Seth, well, Seth loves dramatic timing. Seth will reveal himself until much later. Yes. That'd be a good time. Are you like looking for me or something? Right. Yeah. But no, exactly. not doing that. So, yeah, with zero trouble whatsoever, Luke gets back out of the base. And he's convinced that the military is no help anymore. To be fair, he wasn't exactly helping the military either, so it's kind of even, really. He tells Aaron that we need to go find someone. He proceeds to take her van. Meanwhile, we find out that Maggie has taken Hillary to the hospital, and that uh, doctors apparently cannot perform even life-saving emer- emergency surgery on a uh, minor unless the parent is available, which, I don't know, that might be the case, but it feels a little bit of a stretch when yeah. they're saying, like, they literally sound like they're saying she's going to die if right. we don't do this. That feels like a case, where, especially when you're being told, hey, the parent is not available because he's being chased by people with guns. You might make an exception. Yeah. I would say there's also a really confusing parental rights situation with Luke as well, given that he was alive in the 70s. He served in Vietnam. Oh, God. He had to be and a then, paperwork yes. nightmare. <laughs> Died. It was brought back and then brought fully back to humanity he like he, i guess he was fully alive when he conceived her so i guess that's the key but yeah like his his what happened to social security number so I, they reinstate it oh my gosh i forget how they came down on this but there was a site i read a while back i think it's called law in the multiverse it's a a lawyer who loves comic books and goes through actual legal issues in comics and how they would be handled according to real world law. And it does have a series upon on superheroes coming back from the dead and yep. what that would mean for various, you know, governmental programs. Yeah, I would think like a lot. Yeah. I don't remember how he came down on that. But if you're interested in what Luke Devereaux went through, it's probably in that article. Fair enough. 
So Luke has said he knows where to find someone. So where is he taking Aaron? A strip club, of course. <laughs> yeah, they wander into strip clubs, of course, showing us showing us some boobs because we have to be it's an R-rated film for adults and serious people. Definitely need this in a movie. He tells her to wait downstairs. He goes up the stairs to a office, whereupon he knocks out the security guard in one one shot with a headbutt. He actually weirdly distracts the guy twice. Before he headbutts him, he's like, where's the bathroom? The guy's like, over there. He's like, oh, over there? And the guy looks again and over there and he headbutts him. What was wrong with the first distraction? I guess he didn't turn far enough away. He did. He did the same thing. No, I know. (laughs) So yeah, he needs to knock this one guard to get to a computer room at the strip club. Because let's just go with that. Yeah. Inside the room, you have two people operating phone sex lines and then a stripper in the room. For them, I guess. Pole dancing, yeah. Yeah, there's a random topless pole dancer in the room where there's two people on a phone sex line. Is she, like, practicing? Is that what's going yeah. on here? I don't get what's, what this is, yeah. I guess yeah, there's no reason for this to happen. He uses a computer in that room to find the record to someone. It, he says something at some point about, like, there's a secure line to the basis computers that I know how to get to or something. It's something like that, but I'd like... I didn't even get why he was trying to get into them, but it seems like that's how he tracks down Squid or something. Yeah, I maybe the explanation is that he knows Squid is, goes to this establishment and they have his records. Because he simply looks for this guy's records there. And he's got their but it feels like he logs into something external to do it. Right. Yeah. It just used to be a strip club. Obviously. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's just like we wanted to get a strip club into the movie and yes. this is our really shoddy explanation for doing it. So while he's in the computer... The guard recovered from this headbutt, and two more show up, and they explain what happened, and then Luke decides to exit at that point, setting up a match. All right. So our third match is Luke Devereaux versus multiple strip club security guards, referee the pole dancer. Yeah. Devereaux dodges a punch and KOs the three guards easily. He runs downstairs to retrieve Young, where other guards land some punches, but he quickly fires back with combination strikes as a general brawl starts up. Even the strippers get involved. Young KOs one guard with a bottle. Devereaux decks several more guards, and they escape via Devereaux pretending to be a valet and stealing a dude's motorcycle. This is not a badly put-together action sequence. I'm not fond of the location. Sure. But this is not a badly put-together action sequence. I do appreciate it as an action sequence for for one thing in particular. Luke has been spending most of the movie getting his butt kicked. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to give us a moment to remind us that he is a good fighter. Yeah, we don't get a scene like before he fights the Unisols and is outmatched every time. Right. We don't get a baseline for Luke. He gets to kind of look good in the chase before the fight with Romeo, right. but not in a actual hand-to-hand combat sense. Right. So this is the first scene in the film where we're like, oh, by the way, remember, Luke Devereaux is actually a very talented hand-to-hand combatant. Yeah. And it, and it works for that. It goes by old-timey Western saloon fight rules, where so if you punch a guy and he falls back and bumps into somebody else at the table... That person will be mad at the person in front of him. Right. And then punch him and they'll all start fighting. And it feels like some of them don't even get that justification. Some of them are like across the room from the fight going on. They see it. Hey, a fight's going on. I also hate this guy. (laughs) And punch him. Yeah. (laughs) The other funny thing is, so when the backup security guards come in, like the main one we see is this middle-aged guy (laughs) with like white hair and a mustache. Looks very much like uh, Joe Estevez. Oh, right. Yeah. And he, surprisingly, is, like, the most competent. He actually gets a hit on Luke. He, he gets a few hits on Van Damme, yeah. And you're like, yeah, like w- w- <laughs> why you? 
I mean, kudos, but why you? Yes. <laughs> yes, I enjoy, we'll see, but it's just, it's just there for the action quota, pretty much. Briefly before the fights he breaks up, by the way. So Aaron is at the bar. She's right. upset about everything. This lady in a really fancy dress walks up and offers her a lap dance free of charge. And Aaron, you know, Aaron makes a sort of casual gay panic line about, you know, oh, I like the man. I'm into men. And she's like, well, so is I at one point or something. And then that's when Luke suddenly shows up and then the fight breaks out. Yeah. Aaron does this, this big, like, uh, complain about everything that's happened to me tonight yeah. uh, thing, too, where you're like, I think the lady has some sort of like step outside your comfort zone line. And she's like, yeah. outside my comfort zone. You want to know about outside my comfort zone or something? Like yeah. That. Yeah. Again, like if we actually cared about the Aaron character because we knew her already and she was the same person from the previous film or something like that, you could get something out of yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. But they're really still in the establishing the Aaron character mode. Yeah. Like just before they arrive at the strip club, they have a scene conversing in the van where Luke reveals his wife is dead, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and all this stuff. It's actually a fairly well done scene. But again, it's one of those scenes that it kind of hurts the pacing of the film because it only exists because we're having to introduce this new character because we couldn't get the old one back. Right, right. Like they wouldn't have had to basically do that scene and interrupt the flow of the film if they didn't have to introduce this new person. Right. You can have the you can have the wife be exasperated about what's happening because, you know, she's been through this stuff before and it's not it's yeah. never fun. You could have like a two time. line scene of them driving through there, but instead they have like a two or three minute scene of multiple back and forth because they have to tell things that we already know to the new character that doesn't know them. Yeah. They're doing the um audience viewpoint character that is useful as a thing in first films in a series right. where there's the character that doesn't know anything so that they can be the person that asks the questions the audience is going to ask. Right. The problem is this is either the second or fourth film in the series, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah. And the audience already knows the stuff that Aaron is asking. So you're just getting a rehash of stuff. And yeah, it could be technically probably for people who like me had not seen the original film but they've already done, I think, a good enough job of explaining the original film. They don't need to explain it again and again and again and again. Yeah. I'd say at best, you're just rehashing the information. At worst, you've come to the realization that your film, which oh, it's only at this point seven years old, yeah, is so unmemorable that you need to explain all this stuff to people because they've <laughs> forgotten what happened. Yeah, yeah. I, there's no good explanation for why you, had, you need to do that. Yeah, unfortunately. Oh, incidentally, the guy that they tricked to get the motorcycle from, that's the director. Oh, okay. That's Nick Rogers. I can see that. He looked kind of like a stunt guy. Yeah. Literally, as they drive off, Romeo and some of the soldiers drive up, where Seth tells them that they not follow him because they have another mission for them. Yeah, Seth is like, I already know where he's going now, so. Yes. Romeo's mission is, in fact, to go to Luke's house, where he looks and sees as a mess on his answer machine, where Maggie... I guess thinking she's calling Luke. She leaves an answer machine message saying Luke's daughter is in the hospital and needs help. So, who is this mystery man that Luke needed to go to a strip club to use their computer to find? It's Squid, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Joy. Joy was my line, but that works too. Oh. So, they break into his place and he proceeds to do his proper villain monologue where he explains that he used to work at the facility and, you know, Yada, yada, no one respected his vision, yada, yada. It, it is right up there with the 
alien from Plan 9 from Outer Space doing the, you stupid humans and your stupid, stupid minds. Stupid minds. <laughs> stupid, stupid, stupid. Yeah. He then is very helpful in explaining the plot where he explains that he apparently in secret worked on a super unisol body, which he apparently stored in the basement past all the chemicals. <laughs> I guess. This man was fired from the Unisol project. Yes. It's never really explained why exactly. Well, you you, you see. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I can only assume it's because Kotner had the instinctive, immediate hatred of him that I did. Yeah. But it goes along with the why is the Unisol project being canceled thing from earlier, that what we're told about his contribution is creating a Unisol body that's even better than the other Unisol bodies. Yes. And somehow this is, I guess, a bad thing. Yeah. And so he's removed from the project. Like, yeah, I can only assume it's just it's personal loathing because that's what it would be for me. Yes. So, yes, Squid is backing up the whole time while giving his speech. And once he's finally done with his big monologue, I think he's finally explained enough of the plot and explained how evil he is. He gets deep blue seed when Sathus grabs him behind it, chokes him, and snaps his neck. Yes. If you're wondering why Seth killed the guy who gave him a superhero soul body, by the way, and helped him escape, it's because apparently he was trying to take control. Yeah, he says something about hacking into my code or or accessing a backdoor or something like that. And, and Yeah, I mean, it'd be great if he saw that happen. But, yeah, I guess we'll take this character being killed off in violent fashion. How we can get it, I suppose. Yeah. He also casually mentions that he knows where Luke's daughter is. And he, I believe he pulls the video up on screen. All right, so our fourth match is Luke Devereaux versus Seth. The referee is Squid's corpse. Sure. Devereaux attacks, but Seth bats aside his punch and floors him in two strikes, then leaves. <laughs> See, now this is why we needed Luke to look good in the previous fight scene. Yes. <laughs> also, uh, Seth, couldn't you have just, like, you know, killed Luke, taken him back to base, and resurrected him as a Unisol and made him tell you the code? You think you can just, just take anybody and bring him back as a Unisol, Bob? That's just silly. <laughs> I think at the very least that a previous Unisol could be made a Unisol. <laughs> That'd be a neat plot point if he couldn't be, but right. they don't say anything like that. Fair enough. Anyway, so after thoroughly kicking Luke's very quickly to establish that he is the biggest threat of the movie, he casually pulls up Romeo's video feed inside the hospital, whereupon Romeo apparently punches Maggie from behind in one shot. <laughs> knocks her out in one blow or potentially kills her in one blow because uh because of things we see later but yeah the way the way it's shown he just behind her just boom knocks her down in one blow yeah good job maggie yes really putting all your effort on guarding the kid there to doubly raise the stakes this also sets up a timer inside squid's house which is apparently full of explosives he is a crazy conspiracy theorist guy so it makes sense they managed to run out the door and then jump away from big explosion. And I will give them credit. Yes. They do this way better than First Daughter did. They do, yes. Yeah. They give it a countdown timer instead of a quote-unquote immediate uh, switch. Yes. So they have time to run out the building entrance. Yeah. and We show them outside the building, correct, yeah. Rather than tackle teleporting. <laughs> yes. They have good explosions here. You gotta give them that. If nothing else, they have good explosions. Yeah. It, it was good to have a direct comparison to the last film and say, like, this is how that scene's supposed yeah. to work. <laughs> yes. Here's the worst way, now here's the good way. Yes. So, Luke and Aaron take the motorcycle and drive to the hospital, where they see two unisols hanging around outside. I guess this is Texas, so two armed men just hang outside a hospital. Perfectly eh. normal. <laughs> it's a Tuesday. 
you know. Is that why there's two of them? Because it's Tuesday? Yes. <laughs> I hope I paused enough to just really sink in that I did not like that joke. Hope that was clear through audio. He tells Aaron he's got to wait outside and goes in the hospital where he fights two unnamed Unisols. So our fifth match is Luke Devereaux versus two Unisols. The referee are the two Unisols discarded rifles, which they drop as soon as he comes in for no apparent reason. I think it says that they'll kill him. Actually, no. Romeo shot at him anyway. (laughs) Actually, no. It's... We don't hear Seth say anything, but they drop the rifles. And Luke says, Seth was much more alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Devereaux floors one Unisol with a dryer door, then evades a charge from the other and punts him into an open dryer, shuts it, and turns it on, giving us another of this movie's weird comedy spots. Yeah. As the thing goes cycled in the dryer. Yeah. Devereaux runs away, chased by the recovered first Unisol. They end up in a patient treatment room, where Devereaux lands kicks, but the Unisol dumps a poor patient over and chokes Devereaux. Devereaux zaps the Unisol with a defibrillator, which would absolutely have killed Devereaux since they're in contact, but that's movie physics for you. Right. Also, those work instantly. You don't charge those or anything. Yeah. This hospital keeps their their defibrillators permanently charged at full 300 watts in case anything happens suddenly. Yeah. Just in case a crazed patient ever gets up and tries to kill a doctor, I guess. Is there a special self-defense defibrillator? To recap, Luke, our hero, runs into basically an operating theater. Hops over a guy having worked on him and zooms. He's having like it clearly has some some sort of leg surgery. Yeah, yeah. And you would not want people fighting around you during that, even if it's not a vital organ. No, (laughs) would not be pleasant. Let's put it that way. If you have a make a wish, it's not to have Van Damme jump over you during surgery. No, and then have a guy dump your table over during surgery. Yeah, this is a malpractice suit for this hospital somewhere. Yeah, it's got to be. A little bit later, as he's going through the hallway, Luke is something a friend by Romeo again, because again, he can appear anywhere he feels like. <laughs> Luke managed to kick him once in the head, which caused him to stump back a few feet and fall through a window. Yes. Romeo is unstoppable unless you kick him once near a high object, I guess. Yeah, it's one of, it's again, like he can take a garbage truck to the face and a fall off a building, but one kick is enough to, admittedly, I think it was like a jump kick, but yeah. one kick is enough to send him sailing back through a window and. Van Damme's kick are hyper-effective, as they would say, Pokemon. Yes. Back inside, we see nurses at the station, as Luke is too late to stop Seth from breaking into the room and stealing his daughter. Uh, there is a nice bit just before that, when Seth first gets to Hillary's room. It lightly starts to kind of hint at the theme that we saw early in the film of him actually kind of being friends with Hillary. Right. She kind of reacts to him in a semi-friendly way still, not obviously knowing all the details of him being responsible for her near-fatal accident and all that stuff. He kind of reacts with some concern, looking at her saying like, oh, your temperature is elevated, you're sick. Yeah, she has a a bruise on her head as well. So there's there's a little bit of that nice, like, oh, maybe they will make something of this. Right. Again, it it does come to something a little bit in the film, but just not as... No. Not as much as I was hoping... I was I was really hoping that they'd do something like at a critical moment Hillary is able to distract him or make him call off the dogs or something like that because there is actually a bond yeah, between sure. them. Yeah, be good. Might be somewhat cheesy, but that'd be at least something they could do with it. Mm-hmm. But it just doesn't seem like they. At the very least, she should try it, and that could show progression that he's unaffected by that. Yeah, like, I, I've shot the part of my brain. It's just like it, it's like they they had something here and they didn't realize they had something here. Yeah. For a, a kind of neat plot moment. Telthor is mentioning Seth Renly taking out one guard. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, he uh, just is walking down down a hall towards her room, and a guard's like, "You can't be here, sir." And he just glances back at him, and then does this very nice high kick. Yeah, that he then like holds in position for a moment, and just like one shots the guy. Yeah, it's really, it's Brett's flexibility. To be fair, he does that. It is. Yeah, yeah he has that kick, and he holds the pose to show off a bit. Yeah, looks good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's blatantly just a Michael Jai White gets to show off moment. But right, yeah. <laughs> It also brings up a question they have about this hospital is what the state of control the Unisols have is. Okay, so Romeo got in earlier. Well, I got to where Maggie is and just knocked her out. I thought from that initially that, oh, they're controlling the hospital now. There's guards outside and he's inside and Seth is in. So I both to believe that Romeo snuck into the hospital. I mean, Goldberg is the sneakiest of all wrestlers, obviously. That's the adjective I think of is Goldberg. Like Sting is the most clever at figuring out he's going to be tricked and Goldberg is the sneakiest, right? That's yeah, yeah. Goes. Flair is the most honest. Yeah, absolutely. All these things are true. I mean, Goldberg does have a goatee, so clearly oh. he is part of the mere universe, but... Oh, that's true, yeah. Seth uh, gives a brief little villain monologue to Luke, explaining that he's got to come back to the base and shut off the thing that I guess will still kill him. I'm still unclear in that. Like, right before Luke gets there, he kicks the window to break it. Yeah. Originally, I was wondering why he dives through a window holding the girl, but he actually does kick it first. Yeah, I think he does break the window first, then go out with yeah. her, yeah. And also, Luke has to knock the door in to get to him, which somehow knocks something over and starts a fire. So now that he's given his ultimatum, he has a casual New Jack-style dive out the window while holding the girl, landing on his feet perfectly fine. Yeah. Admittedly, they have established via Squid's annoying, annoying monologue that he's like five times stronger and more durable than a normal right. human, so... I like the style he does it with. He just jumps out the window with her. Yeah, he's just like, ah, I'll be okay. <laughs> I will say it's a missed opportunity, though, because a little bit before this scene, we saw Goldberg's Romeo kicked out a window on the ground. We don't see them interacting on the ground at any point. Yeah, would have been funny for Seth to, like, walk by and say, huh, I thought you guys were tougher. <laughs> so- <laughs> and obviously, even though it would be improbable because they're different places, it would have been funny if he landed on Romeo. <laughs> I mean, they've given Romeo every other comedy moment in this movie so far. They might as well do that. Yeah. Back on the ground floor, Romeo re-enters, having been annoyed at falling out the window, and goes back inside, whereupon he's confronted by a security guard with a very, very large jaw. Yes. Like, think Robert Zadar, but way bulkier. A very pro-wrestler-shaped security guard. (laughs) Yes. So our sixth match is Romeo versus hospital security guard and orderlies. The referee is a somewhat attractive desk lamp. Yeah, okay. Romeo removes the chest portion of his body armor for no good reason but to show off his muscles. Yes. He catches the guard's baton and no-sells punches, then chokes him, runs him into a wall, and flings him into a table. The guard gets up, so Romeo ducks and delivers a sidekick to the face. Two orderlies, who also look suspiciously pro-wrestler-shaped, enter. Romeo knocks them around and gives one a backbreaker, then spears the other because he's Goldberg. Yes. Suddenly, an elevator opens, and Devereaux appears, dodging another spear by jumping so that Romeo eats wall. We're doing all of the Goldberg spots, save the jackhammer here, I guess. Yeah. Devereaux kicks Romeo and closes him into the elevator, then flees. <laughs> I want to say, I'm, I'm torn on this scene because this is both what I wanted so, so badly from DDP in yeah. First Daughter, and an absolutely blatant time filler that's only there to pad out the minutes and show off that the fight choreographer knows that Goldberg is a pro wrestler. Yes. If they weren't using Goldberg pretty extensively in this already, I'd really welcome this entirely. 
but they already are using him pretty well. So it just comes off as this weird tonal shift when we're suddenly in a pro wrestling fight for absolutely no reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do still kind of love it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things. This is a scene you can watch out of context of the whole movie. Yes, which is both good and bad because it's so disconnected from everything. They have to find an excuse for him to be back on the ground for to fight these guys, even though he was already upstairs. Yeah. And then he just happens to be next to the elevator that Devereaux is taking to the ground floor to try to chase Seth. Correct, yes. Hospitals have more than one elevator, guys. He got pretty lucky here. <laughs> yes. So there's a background for you, by the way. The suspiciously, what do you call him? The suspiciously pro wrestler-shaped guard? Yes. It was a pro wrestler. Uh, uh, shocking. Said guard was Sylvester Turquay. He had a career between the late 90s. Starting on MMA, he did Pride in um, Japan. He did wrestling in Japan as well. He had a brief run in the WWE version of ECW, or WWECW, as people oh, okay. call it. All right. Where he was briefly managed slash teaming with Elijah Burke. Oh, okay. Featured D'Angelo De Niro and TNA. They were the knockout and tap-out connection. Burke being a former pro boxer. Gotcha. And him being a MMA submission artist. Doesn't really roll off the tongue, does it? It does not, no. no. <laughs> it's no rock and sock connection. No, yeah. It's a weird link between these two, actually. This is before Turkey's pro wrestling career, as limited as it was, really took off. So this is like kind of the, his first big thing is being in this movie. In 2012, he had his last match. He had been wrestling on and off after leaving, being released from WWE. Worked a big show with a bunch of other XWE guys like Shannon Helms and others in Guyana. And guess who was a guest at that show? Goldberg. Cool. <laughs> It was, it was at this point, Goldberg is just appearing at a show. Like, so I don't Not care. actually doing matches. I really wish they had a match that would have really connected so It'd be well hilarious together. if they like just were like, oh, we're having a match. Let's use the fight choreography we used in the Yeah, movie. right? <laughs> Luke's defense, by the way, of jumping out of the way of the spear, that's what Brock finally learned in WrestleMania. <laughs> yes. See, he, he was a Universal Soldier fan, and he watched this movie finally. And- Honestly, if you told me Brock was a Unisol, I'd believe you. That would explain so much. Yeah. That would 100% explain everything. Uh-huh, yeah. This movie's bad at sequences and locations, as we've noted at multiple times before, but this is one more example of it. Luke went to the room to see Seth kidnap his daughter. Yeah. The room is on fire. Yeah. He charges downstairs, takes the elevator downstairs, evades Romeo, locks Romeo in the elevator, charges outside to see if he can catch up with Seth. Can't catch up with Seth. Yeah. So he goes to meet Aaron who is now inside the hospital, despite apparently being told to stay with the motorcycle. Yeah. And he appears to be back on the same floor where his daughter's room was, mm-hmm. where he had asked after his daughter earlier. So, one, how did he get past Romeo again? We're, we're shown him, like, leaving the hospital, and then the very next shot is him back upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> also... No one on the floor appears to be disturbed about anything in particular, which they should be, because there is a hospital room on fire on that floor. Right. <laughs> it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's like, why does he have to meet her back in the hospital? Why can't she just be outside? There was also, you know, a guy who was attacked during operation. Yes. That worried some attention as well. Yes. The broken window. There's many things that have happened in this hospital yeah. that should be alerting security. I guess maybe the only security guard they had was the one that Goldberg KO'd. Yeah, I guess so. Well, sorry, they had at least two, but both of them are knocked out now. So Exactly. Because Seth got one. True. Back at the base, Luke asks Aaron to buy some time for him, and she kisses him. Finally, you have the payoff, this 
very busy few hours they've had together, and they're in love. This is the scene where I'm like, okay, this would totally work if it was the reporter from the first film. Right. Because obviously they've already had a relationship. Yeah. It made perfect sense for her to say the line, Luke, I'm scared that you won't come back. Right. Go save our daughter, something yeah. like that. This feels like the culmination of a two-movie romantic relationship Yeah, that, you know, as the Han and Leia sharing a worried moment for the person they're in love with. But in this case, it's being done between two characters that have like all of, I don't know, maybe five hours together. Yeah. 90% of which was spent bickering. Well, so this is the 90s, Bob. In the 90s, we rush through these things very quickly. For example, speed. I mean, but in that one, they actually lampshade it. Right. They actually say, you know, I've heard that relationships form in, in stressful situations don't work out. They kind of justify right, right. doing this stuff. But in this, it's just like, there's no real hint of them really developing romantically. They, they joke about her being a cheerleader, at, former cheerleader at one point, And then she asked, like, Luke, what's your type? And he says, actually, I'm into cheerleaders. But that's all the romantic development right. they've gotten. And now it's like, kiss. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, sure. Maybe she's just really into former dead guys. Hey, you know. Had a future relationship with The Undertaker, I guess. Yeah, very similar. to He likes blondes, obviously. This scene and a couple other scenes to come are the ones that I feel like were clearly written for the original reporter character. Yeah. And they spent the entire movie trying to justify getting this character to this moment. Mm-hmm. instead of making up something else for her to do because she's not the same person. Yeah. By the way, what, um, what to Luke's knowledge, is she buying him time for? Um, like, he yeah. says, you need to buy me some time. Time from what? I guess to stop the motion from doing something. But, like, he doesn't know that they're doing anything. Obviously, when she goes to Radford, right. he's going to tell her, we've wired the base to explode. Luke doesn't know that. I mean, okay, so Luke knew they wanted to blow the place up before because they wanted him to go in and set the tactical explosives up before. Yeah, but that failed, so... Right. I mean, I, I guess maybe he was to stop him from doing something. Yeah. He's not civic about it, but yeah. It's just like, it feels like, again, these scenes should have been in reverse order, that he should go to Radford and Radford should say, hey, we're going to blow the base up. Right. And then he should go to her and say, you need to buy me time. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Unfortunately, the military decided they're going to properly blow up the building. And all the reasons they could blow up before, but the chemical weapons, I hand-waved away. We have a thing that'll, whatever, who cares? Yeah, and also, apparently, they can get a team in successfully to set explosives now, despite the fact that it's still clearly invested by unisols. Well, Seth, Seth's busy, you know, stealing children. Yeah, I guess so. Inside, we cut to a unisol walking by where Luke suddenly just takes them out with one single pipe shot and shoots them a bunch of times. Yeah. I'm pretty sure this is Delta. From it is, yeah, it's Delta. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's so weird. It's like... It feels like the unisols are getting a little weaker as the film goes on. Yeah. Um, by the way, I'm pretty sure this same soldier does still show up in uh, the ending March of the Unisol. I think so. Which, which is a little weird because the way that Luke sells this moment, Van Damme is clearly getting one of his, again, kind of nice conflicted looks where he like feels a little bit guilty about clearly killing this guy. Right. It looks like Luke clearly 100% killed the guy. He's not coming back this time. Mm-hmm. But then he appears to come back again. As he's running looking for his daughter, he comes across Maggie, who he's definitely surprised to see. She so sort of casually tells him that, oh yeah, I was killed and brought back as a unisol. Yeah. So yeah, that one punch killed her. Yeah, it's, it's nice of them to at least inform us of that, since it was very unclear from the earlier yeah. scene that she died. Right. She's still trying to fight the programming. He shoots her 
before she can do anything. Basically. Yeah, she she kind of does start to draw. Right. She, she's resisting enough that he has time to do it, basically. Yeah. Um, this is another scene where I think Van Damme does an excellent job. You know, he has the quick reaction, shoots her, and then has this look on his face of, oh my gosh, what have I done? Right, right. But again, doesn't oversell it or anything. No, it's no. just like he went with the training in the situation that saved his life. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in the moments afterwards is when it dawns on him what has just happened. Right, yeah. He knows he had to do it, but he also yeah. realizes that he didn't want to do it. Yeah. Regret crosses his face, but he doesn't like fall down on his knees and start weeping or anything no, like no, that. He yeah. he keeps it a, a subtle reaction, enough to be respectful of the moment, and then they move on. He's getting a lot of these little touches through the movie that are yeah, quite nice. So after that, he finally finds his daughter. She's in this room that's full of glass walls and doors. It's a very see-through area. Seth appears, explains that he has her in the chamber where they, they use the gas to heal the soldiers. Yes, we, we see on a computer, by the way, that these things are called rejuvo booths, ah. which is the most non-military name that I can think of. I say, does Dan Lee name these things? Yeah. <laughs> Seth explains that he can use the gas to heal her, because apparently his daughter has... Some sort of subdermal hematoma, I think they say. I think that's what they call it, yeah. So that's why she's in the hospital, but also weird that doctors couldn't fix that while she was there for hours. Yeah, that's, like I said, they give this excuse that, like, we need the parent's permission, even though the parent is in a situation where he may very well be dead. Uh, And one of them definitely is. Yeah, one of them definitely is dead. The other, last Maggie saw, was being chased by soldiers with guns. Yeah. And somehow that's not enough to convince them, hey, maybe we need to do something about this because we might never get permission. That actually would have been a nice little thing for Maggie if she could say, oh, I have power of attorney. Yeah. She says something oh, like, I'm kind of the girl's aunt, but she right, doesn't right. say I have power of attorney. If you can say I have power of attorney, that's, again, establishes more of the connection between the two of them. Exactly, yeah. So when this happens later, you're just really sad. Yeah. Seth says that he'll heal her if you give me the code. And he's, his whole villain monologue about how, which is more important to you, her life or everyone else's or something like that. Mm-hmm. Delivered rather well. No, yeah. It's, again, a good delivery. It's cheesy dialogue. Yeah. Good delivery. Luke's response is, of course, to just shoot him. Fair enough. And then turn on the device. Uh, he does have to make a couple tries at it. Over right, right, yeah. Match seven is Seth versus Luke Devereaux for the code to shut down the termination program and the life of Hillary Devereaux. The referee for this match is more broken glass than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Down McLean special. Yes. Seth flings Devereaux through a plate glass window, then hurls a compressed gas cylinder at him, which hits the wall next to some inconveniently placed barrels of flammable material that have, for some reason, been stored right next to all of the base's expensive medical equipment. Why? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The cylinder explodes from the impact, which... No. Just no. (laughs) We don't need to ask Jamie on that one. No. Seth blocks Devereaux's strikes and kicks him through more glass. As they face off again... Seth's decryption program actually breaks the code, so he doesn't need Devereaux anymore. He does promise to take care of Hillary, though. Nice of him. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Devereaux charges and lands multiple kicks and chops, kicking Seth through some more glass, and starts the medical program for Hillary successfully now. But Seth jump kicks him through more glass. They fight in the chamber that's used for making new unisols, and Devereaux goes through yet more glass. Of course. He should be cut to ribbons by this point, but there's absolutely no blood. Seth gets Devereaux on the Unisol creation chair and activates the laser that they use for cutting open the brain to implant the control chips, but Devereaux grabs it just in time and twists it to cut along Seth's face. Seth casually backfists him through more glass. 
Devereaux goes for his fallen gun, but Seth boots him away into the Unisol cooling room. Devereaux goes for the rifle again, but Seth steps on it and picks him up. Devereaux gets free, but Seth blocks his strikes, only for Devereaux to scoop up the gun, but Seth dodges, landing loads of kicks and knocking Devereaux through some nice patio chairs. Those are the chairs that the Unisols rest in. Yeah, I was saying, who are those chairs for? Because otherwise it's just the the audience to watch Unisols get their bath, I guess. They look like patio chairs, but they're clearly metal in movie terms anyway. Right, right, yeah. Devereaux throws chairs at Seth, but he bats them aside, deflecting Devereaux's blows. Devereaux lands a nice backflip kick, kind of the uh, guile flash kick. Yeah. But Seth boots him into the wall, and Devereaux narrowly dodges a chair kicked at him. Devereaux spots the cryogenic controls and runs along the chair armrest, kicks off the wall, and spin kicks Seth in the face. It's a bit of obvious wire work there, but it did look cool. It did look cool, yeah. Devereaux gets his rifle and drives Seth back with multiple shots. Seth gloats that the gun won't work on him, and Devereaux acknowledges that, so he shoots the cryogenic controls, unleashing freezing jets of gas into Seth. Seth still marches out, but he freezes over, so Devereaux knocks his head and body apart with a very nice high kick and some fairly shoddy CG. Sub-Zero wins. (laughs) Fatality. Yes. (laughs) This was heard a little bit by some wire work that was being used with or without justification in a lot of films at the time. I don't mind the bits where they use it for Seth as much, because he's supposed to be superhuman. Right. But when they use it for Devereaux a bit, too, that's less justified. And none of it quite fits with the fight's flow. Seth, like, throws a tear with his foot. That's this is a pretty obvious wire aspect of that. Yeah, there's a couple points where he does it, and then there's the wall kick bit with Devereaux. Right. That's clearly some. But, like I said, with Seth, you have some justification for it. He's superhuman, so you right. can do this stuff to make him look superhuman. With Devereaux, there's not really... The whole thing is he's human again. Right, yeah. So they should have avoided it for him. You know, it got cool in, in like, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Matrix, and stuff like that around this time. Yeah, this is the year of the Matrix, so... Yeah. So, like, every film started doing it for a while, whether they had a in-world excuse for it or not. Yeah, it was a great year for Corey Ewan, the guy that did all those fight scenes. Yeah. He got a lot of work out of that. I'm also not really keen on just how much glass they send Devereaux through without any consequence. Yeah. It's like four or five panels of plate glass that he gets like flung through or kicked through or backfisted through. Mm -hmm. And he's not bloody. His shirt's not cut. He doesn't appear to get worn down or anything. Well, it's like, is Seth wounded by having the laser at his eye? Not really. Um, I mean, admittedly, they do the, you know, five times durability thing again, but... But lasers? Yeah, it feels like that should have done something. But this is the thing, like, the fight scene that they've designed... You don't have to go over overboard on gore, but it needs a little bit of blood or a little bit of scarring from the laser or something like that. Yeah. We need to see that these guys have taken damage and they don't do any damage makeup. That's true, yeah. They come out completely unscathed in the whole situation. Yeah. If you're doing a largely bloodless fight scene, that's fine, but quit doing things that should cause bleeding. Mm-hmm. That's That's the thing, I think. Right. Otherwise, though, I really liked this. Yeah. I thought it's a good fight scene. Devereaux having to think things through to win is nice taking advantage of Seth's arrogance to get him into a trap. And it's a good culmination of the movie's theme that Devereaux is not as strong or as fast as the Unisols, but he has a ton of experience. Mm -hmm. We did almost lose that theme in the last couple of fights, but they brought it back here, so that was nice. Yeah, absolutely. The ending falls apart a little bit, no pun intended, when he kicks the guy and like the whole body explodes. I wish they'd just done the head, yeah. Yeah. It would have been a subtler effect and easier for them to do, I think. It would have looked a lot better, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the transition when he's 
being frozen is a good transition when they do. Yeah, I, I like the effect for that, actually, yeah. But then just, yeah, he kicks it and it just throws full CG and it looks not great because this is, even this is fairly a big budget, this is still 90s big budget CGI, so. Yeah, this is going to be a it's gonna this be is a, a little before we started getting the really really good CG in as as a common thing. Yeah, we had we had excellent CG for things like the Matrix. Obviously, they did yeah. some that, that worked really well. And there's yeah, there's standout moments ahead of this, but consistency for yeah. Sure. At this point, for every Matrix, you have you know a Blade Two's computer generated fight in front of the bright lights. Yeah, where it's like oh god, why'd you do that? <laughs> or like you, you compare um, a little bit later, Spider Man did really good with the CGI doubles. Right. But then Daredevil... Not as good. The year later, didn't do as well. You're like, but, huh? This is not an awful effect. No. But it's just bad enough that you notice that it's an effect. Yeah, and just because it happens, it's such a big effect abruptly as well. Yeah. So after the fight, Luke gets to his daughter, who is fully recovered from the healing gas, which, again, they should really be selling to everyone. <laughs> yeah. This is evidence this works on normal humans. Yes. And they try to exit the facility. He sends her off one direction to get out the front because he's confronted by, guess who? Romeo. Yep. Despite the fact that we've now faced the main villain of the movie and defeated him, Romeo's still a bad guy. Yes. I guess he was previously programmed to be bad or maybe. Yeah, it's not clear why they're still actively doing the mission without Seth. Yeah. So much like um, WCW's, what was it, Wrestle War 89? Yes. After our clear main event, we have more action. Yeah. Now we've had Flair and Steamboat, we're going to have these two tag title matches. Yeah. So our eighth match and technical main event is Romeo versus Luke Devereaux. The referee for this match is a looming explosion as Radford outside says that we have two minutes to boom. <laughs> Devereaux lands kicks and punches until Romeo blocks a punch and does a fireman's carry takeover. Romeo chokes Devereaux and says he never did like him, then lifts him overhead. But Unisol Maggie reappears. Romeo tells Maggie to kill Devereaux, but she shoots Romeo instead. Maggie claims it's too late for her and tells Luke to get Hillary out. So, um, are, are we ignoring that Luke used to be a unisol and is now made human again? Yes, we are. I, I guess so. To be fair, that did take Dr. Kotner to do, and he's now dead, but you would assume that he maybe might have taken some notes on achieving would, human resurrection? I would think he, I mean, Frankenstein wrote his stuff down in the book, so. Yeah, that, that seems like it would make at least one paper in a scientific journal, maybe, like, I resurrected a man. Yeah, yeah. Or I guess he did half the work anyway. Yeah. I think, more think about it, okay, so, Luke being a unisol still doesn't really affect anything. Yeah. Because, okay, they established that the unisols are twice as, you know, Mitchie's assaulting him passively aggressively. Two and a half times stronger than the original Usals, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, he could still be at a disadvantage right. because of that, yeah. I guess because he has to have a kid, that's why he has to be human. I think that's, yeah, that must be it. That, But does he? Yeah, I I'm don't not know. entirely clear on that. They run into so many problems because of so many things that they don't justify that they kind of needed to. And then these plot holes like, okay, wait, you totally could just take the Unisol stuff back out of her and she'd be okay. Yeah. According to... This movie's pre-established logic. Yeah, it's it. Uh, it wouldn't even be bad if you had her do a heroic sacrifice. Oh, yeah. If she charged Romeo, couldn't get him with a range shot, so she charges him and is like, "Luke, I'll hold him off." Yeah. You know, rather than saying it's too late for me and like like I've given up, no, she just nobly sacrifices her life. Yeah. To get him out, that would be fine. Yeah. But yeah. because she deals with Romeo before. Telling Luke, no, leave, I've just given up on this world. <laughs> it's like, 
it introduces problems that didn't have to be in the movie. Correct. <laughs> back outside, since this film is ADHD now, we got to constantly cut back and forth yeah. between these two things. We get to your favorite moment, which is the general or is the explosion, and Aaron, thinking of nothing else she can do, punches him in the face. <laughs> It shockingly does not work. Yeah, we're, yeah. he's like, ma'am, we have to set these bombs off. I don't have any any choice. We have to set these bombs off. I'm going to order the bombs. She's like, well, I don't have a choice either or something along that. Yeah, way. yeah. Punches him hard as she can in the face. He completely no-sells and, yeah. and ignores her. And everyone else ignores her. Yeah. And he just goes, start the detonation. Which, by the way, is a little bit weird because he previously said that they had a timer going. Yes, he did. But anyway, even for that, it's just like... It's it's the funniest thing. I about died laughing when yeah, we were yeah. watching this because the extent to which her punch does not matter. This almost has to be the most ineffective punch in movie history. Yeah. Not only does her target no sell it and just do what he was going to do anyway without him or anyone else even responding to her, it actually emerges that it doesn't even matter whether or not she delayed him because the villain had actually already ensured that the explosives would not in fact go off. That's true. Yeah. It's utterly pointless her whole role in this movie in fact is utterly pointless true she has accomplished nothing in this film other than i guess she has one moment where she saves luke from romeo right when she shoots and i guess luke takes her in the van to go to the strip club but he doesn't have to take her van it's like it could have been anything yeah so her useful actions in this movie are one gunshot yeah She's less useful than Alex McGregor in The First Daughter. True, yeah. yeah. On the bright side, she's not the title character. Right, right. <laughs> the other part of this, I don't know if you caught this or not. I swear I, I saw seeing something, so I went back and watched the same like minute-long sequence a few times to make sure I got it. I even screen-capped. Before they cut back to Luke inside, after they ordered the explosions, they cut to a static shot of the outside of the building, and someone who's clearly the daughter is standing there. They're just standing fully still. Oh, and then it cuts to the inside, where next thing you see is her running outside. I did not catch that. It's just it's someone, a typical girl, and clearly wearing the overall or coverall, do you call those? Oh, that's weird. So it's I think what it was is they were doing like test shots and stuff, so they had her stand there for framing and stuff. Gotcha. But they cut to that shot instead of cutting to a shot. They were like, we need an exterior shot of the building, and they cut to it without thinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Shoot, she's there. Yes. I'll post it as well. It's really weird. I'm like, wait, is that a person standing there? Yes. So she runs outside and meets Aaron, who's so happy to see her. Rating her like a mother. Right. Yes. True. Despite only having one scene with this girl in the movie before. Uh, Romeo, we come back inside again. Romeo is grouping with the other soldiers, which includes Delta, as mentioned. And they are marching back in sequence to go outside next to the building. Just ahead of them, Luke runs out. And looking back, I guess seeing them, I think they start to come out through the door, maybe. Mm-hmm. He shoots the detonator, parked in front of the building, and everything explodes. Yes. Is that how that works? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, it would depend on what type of explosive was being used mm-hmm. and what the rifle technically shoots. I think it's probably fair to say that the rifle has really high-velocity ammo. Yeah. It's one of the Unisol rifles he's using, right, at that Correct. point. Correct, yeah, yeah. So there are explosives that if you shoot them with something that travels fast enough that would cause a shockwave, so a supersonic ammo, right? like a lot of high-powered rifles, mm-hmm. that will cause a detonation okay. reaction. 
if you assume he's shooting that type of explosive, that would work. Mm-hmm. If you assume he's shooting a computer that's supposed to detonate the thing, not so much. No. Also, you know what's missing in that shot with the Romeo and the others going outside? Maggie. Fair enough, yeah. She shoots Romeo to let Luke escape, and we never see her again. Yeah, she just disappears. Like, it would make sense if she was saying, like, it's too late for me, I'm being overtaken by yeah, the program yeah, yeah. again, so right. she shows up marching with them, yeah, she, or no. if she makes one last-ditch attempt to stop them right, or something. No. Again, give her her sacrifice instead of making it sound like she's just given up on life. Yeah. It's really depressing. A little bit, yeah. The building blows up in a massive explosion where, I want to say, like, 40% of the budget probably went to. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, too. Um, it at least looked like, again, they are filming in a location that they cannot blow up. Yeah. Because this is a, still at this point, a government-owned building. Right. It doesn't seem like they used, like, a miniature. Mm-hmm. It looks like, instead, what they did was do the explosives quite a distance from the actual building. You see, you can see them go off in a line. They do, yeah, yeah. They clearly start somewhat distant from the building. It's, it's fast, so you don't really... Right, yeah. Unless you're looking, you don't get to look at it, but... Nothing visibly moves closer to the building. Mm, it's like a pyro almost. Yeah, it's like it's like wrestling pyro that goes off very locational. It goes up like yeah. closer to the fence or something okay. around the building and just like surrounds it rather than ever showing anything of the building itself detonating. Right, fair enough. The blast is so strong it knocks Luke butt over tea kettle. Yes. I know you gotta work that in there. Aaron and his daughter go to see Luke and they hug and suddenly moves over. <laughs> so, so- Yep, fade to black. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's the funniest thing. (laughs) Did we miss anything? Now we're done. Yeah, I remember we're watching this, and uh, John joined us for like the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie, I think. And all this hilarious crap starts happening in the last 15 minutes of the movie. That's where you have the no-sold punch that's utterly useless anyway, Mm -hmm. this building explosion, where you have um, the plate glass windows all over the place fight, the bad CGI you know, all of this stuff that was not really happening earlier in the no. movie is all all on here. And then the movie just stopping. Yeah. Yeah, jo- John, I think, quipped to us, oh, I clearly came for the best part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. The movie just ending out of nowhere. No wrap-up, no six weeks later the program was discontinued or showing Luke and Aaron now in a relationship and, you know, right. hey... I know you're sad about losing your reporter mommy, so I got you a new reporter mommy scene or anything like <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, Luke clearly has a type, by the way. He does. No, we're going on vacation to learn how to fly planes, like in First Daughter. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's just like, kiss, fade to black. <laughs> you know what? We, we, we need Tony Schiavone. Oh, we're out of time. Yeah, we are desperately out of time. It's, oh my gosh, it's, oh, it's so, so funny. Just, yeah, the, the, the three of them hug and just done. <laughs> yeah. This movie does not handle its plot well no. for the most part, but I think that's the ultimate example of it, that it thinks that's all you care about. Yeah, yeah, right. That all you care about is, yay, we blew up the Unisols, mm-hmm. and that nothing else of the plot mattered. And that's actually kind of true in this case, but it's not yeah. what you should be going for. What you should be going for when you're making a film is the people should have gotten to care enough about our characters that they care about what's going to happen to yeah. them at least in the immediate after the film. Right. And there is stuff to be wrapped up. There's like, you know, okay, what does happen involving the Unisol project, involving all the files they probably had? What happens with Luke afterwards? Does he get in trouble for charging to the base against orders, you know, or 
Does Aaron get in trouble for decking a general in front of his troops? No, apparently not. No. <laughs> it's pretty rare for a film to do this where they don't give you any kind of wrap-up at all. No. They were just tired and wanted to go home, I guess. Yes, we are out of money. Megadeth's Crush'em, which is later used as Goldberg's entrance theme, is in the end credits. The beat to that song. Is it just me, or does that sound like Funky Town? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Like, you can, picture, you can picture that, right? Yeah, yeah. It goes somewhere totally different, but the opening rhythm to the song and instrumentation they're using really sounds like Funky Town, yeah. which is kind of weird for the type of song it is. Now, was that on the CD, the WCW one? Genuinely can't remember. I, the I, timeline's right, though. I think it might have been. Yeah. That is 99. I feel like it's the right time for that. I can't remember for sure. Gotcha. I know they paid a lot of money for it, because, you know, it's WCW. They paid a lot of money for a lot of things. So, yeah, that's the movie, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so, um, overall thoughts on Universal Soldier The Return? Uh, it's a dumb, fun action movie, but it's never going to be anything more than that. Mm-hmm. It's not for lack of trying on some people's parts to give the movie some credit, as we've gone over before. Michael J. White as Seth is very enjoyable. He gives a good lackluster script, some oomph, I would say, with his mm-hmm. voice. And his- he elevates the yeah, part yeah. that they give him, yeah. He makes the bad dialogue sound, at least sound efficient and uh, official, I guess, mm-hmm. with his delivery. Goldberg, while a bit over the top and a lot, especially towards the end, is very fun as a cocky, arrogant Unisol, even if that doesn't really make sense. He is clearly having a good time, at least, which, if you can tell the people making it enjoyed making it, that does give you some extra entertainment value. Yeah. And I think Goldberg, at least, is clearly having a good time. Yeah, for better or worse, he really stands out amongst all the Unisols. Mm-hmm. So it's good in the sense that he's Goldberg playing this big, angry character, but at the same time, he really shouldn't be playing that character. Right, yeah. So it's a mixed mix bag. Uh, even Van Damme, like, as we've gone before, he tries hard to view parts. He tries to emote in a subtle but efficient way. It really gets what they're going for across. I could easily see him both going too little you know, acting coach says, oh, you know, you're an action star. Don't emote. Don't feel sad or anything. Likewise, you can see an actor coach really pushing him, saying, you know, this is a big scene. You got to act up and really act yeah. him going for more than he that he does. It feels like in a lot of the movie, he hits like exactly the right balance on yeah. motion, which is it's I was not expecting from Van Damme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not that he's a terrible actor. No, no, no. Yeah, like, but I'm used to big 90s action star. Like you said, you either get very little reaction or too much reaction. Yeah. You're casually murdering everybody or, yeah, you're really sad abruptly. Yeah. Uh, the action is enjoyable at times, but definitely doesn't make most of his cast. Mm-hmm. There's really not enough stuff save the final fight or semi-final fight, I guess, where you get really get used to fighting Michael J. White to play your villain. Yeah. I wish I could have found some of the people from him to fight besides a random guard to kick once and then Luke to fight. Yeah, I mean, as much as I do love the Goldberg versus the pro wrestling security guard scene, you really should have given Seth that type of fight scene. Yeah. Where he, like, kicks around a number of people. Yeah, yeah. Outside of that one scene, we only get, like you mentioned, we only get hints of Goldberg really wrecking people, which is why you hire Goldberg for a movie like this. Mm-hmm. Whereas Stanislay, he just straight up thrust kicks guys and throws them around, so... As bad as that movie is... It's at least using Goldberg at Goldberg. Yeah, exactly. It's using Goldberg properly. Yeah, it's a shame. Like, we get the one big, fun, but only singular fight scene with 
Michael J. White and Van Damme fighting. Mm-hmm. It would be nice to have something more to that. Even slightly extending maybe the original fight. Or I said he's a fight and it's being punched, you know, knocked down instantly. I don't know. I same point, I like the efficiency of how well he takes him out. Yeah. But it would be nice if he'd be caught up and tried it again. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm torn on that one. I feel like I I wanted to see another Seth fight scene, but I didn't want to see another Seth versus Devereaux fight scene. Mm-hmm. I liked having him knocked out really fast and then getting his redemption with a longer fight later. Like maybe you could have had um, during the military invasion of the base, he confronts a few of the Rangers and gets in hand to hand combat oh, yeah. with them. Those would be a good, highly trained target for him to fight. Yeah, but not an important one plot wise, so he can just kick him around and. Right. You could you could have had it um after Luke leaves, so Luke doesn't see him until later. Yeah. On the plus side, the film has lots of explosions and does them right, whether it can actually blow things up or disguises it really well like the finale. Mm-hmm. It's not super obvious that they're cutting around when the building up. It looks like no, yeah, no, it's yeah, a good, good a good explosion yeah. effect. They're definitely ridiculous, but in this case it's kind of a positive for the movie you're I'm watching and what I expect. This was less a movie than a collection of loosely connected action scenes. Yes. The action was pretty decent to good in general, but there just wasn't much more to the movie than that. Admittedly, it is an action film, so that's not entirely unexpected. But you'd hope to see some plot progression, character development, maybe a subplot or two sprinkled in for flavoring. Yeah. There's just really not much of any of that. There's about as much plot here as an 80s action video game. Yeah. Seth has taken over the Unisol complex. Is Luke Devereaux a bad enough dude to rescue his daughter? Yeah, right. Seriously, tell me one plot point that complicates it beyond that summary. Uh, yeah. No, not really. The situation is static for most of the film. The characters are static. No one changes, no one learns anything. It kind of feels like a mid-season episode of a TV show. Mm. You know, we've already set the scene, but we're not yet ready to go to the end of season revelations and character changes. Oh, okay, yeah. Not quite running in place episode, but you're not getting a big character moment in this one. Not full Endless 8. No, yeah. (laughs) There's tension and there's excitement at times, but there's nothing that connects you to the film or makes you feel or get to know the characters at a deeper level. Yeah. We do get hints at some options for developments. The most intriguing, like I've mentioned before, and therefore the most disappointingly abandoned, is the relationship between Seth and the various humans in the film, particularly Hilary Devereaux. Yeah. Which seems like it could have been, you know, maybe a redeeming feature of his, or at least a weakness that could have been used against him. But it ends up just really being an explanation of why he doesn't just kill the kid, but nothing else. Yeah. Luke doesn't really act like he has any more of a friendship with Seth than with the various unisols that he fights. Right. Yeah. Despite seeming quite friendly with the computer in the early going. He does, yeah. Seth really starts out seeming like an interesting and potentially complex character, but as soon as things kick off, he just turns full supervillain and lacks any nuance whatsoever. Yeah, very much so. A second pretty much abandoned plot is the fact that Luke was working for Unisol after having been a Unisol and been cured. There's some really interesting things you could delve into there, and briefly it seems like the movie might go there when he has that flashback early in the film, when he's watching Delta get treated. Yeah. They really just don't do anything with it other than someone occasionally saying, you know, Luke used to be a Unisol. Yeah. And whoever they're conversing with, looking at them like they just grabbed a nice turkey sandwich recipe, rather than that they casually mentioned that they brought a corpse back to full normal human life. <laughs> yeah. It's a real missed opportunity, and Luke ends up seeming more like a normal soldier dad in the film instead of a former Unisol. Mm. As we mentioned early on, 
the very idea that the Unisol program could be in danger of being totally shut down is absurd. Yes. You might justifiably have a problem with recycling corpses to become soldiers, especially as, as I said, these guys appear to maybe have the capacity for self-determination, and if right. they do, they should be able to use it. Radford mentions that we had to clean up the mess you left before yeah. as well. But even leaving that aside, the program has, again, invented super powerful multifunctional rifles, mm-hmm. extremely durable bulletproof body armor, useful target identification and tracking glasses, an extraordinarily powerful and self-aware supercomputer, mm-hmm. a medical regeneration table that can basically treat any injury and proven by Hillary Late in the film works on non-unisols, and yes, literal human resurrection. Yes. It's bizarre that that's a plot point in the film that this program is being canceled. Mm -hmm. with all of those positive developments. You really would think that it'd be something like, uh, Dr. Kotner, we have an offer for you. We'd like you to work somewhere else. Bring Seth. He's really cool. (laughs) You know, all this stuff. Just like, uh, let's not animate corpses anymore. They could have found a way to make it about how they were worried about Seth. Yeah, if they could have been like, Seth has already done something that feels untrustworthy to them, even if it was an innocent thing. Right. So they're specifically gunning for Seth, shutting him down, and he's personally worried about himself, which is part of it, but right, yeah, it just feels like so many of those early moments in the film need more justification than they get is all. Absolutely. It really doesn't help that the film takes place in the span of a single night. Yes. Limiting the movie's time frame and locations removes a lot of the options they would have for complications, side characters, chances to throw some character development in there. Everything just kind of feels like it's rushed. Any scenes that aren't immediate action are basically just characters walking to the next place where they're going to fight. True, yeah. The situation doesn't change, really, because no time passes for it to change. Again, the 80s video game thing. We have a stage of action and then a two-panel cutscene of, I went here, and this guy said mean things, so I punched him. You know? It also makes Aaron pointless. Yeah. As a reporter... Her skills are information gathering and talking with people. And with her and Devereaux running from unisols all the time and not talking to people other than unisols, there's not much of either. Right. The only information gathering scene in the movie that I can recall is when Luke has to hack into the complex computers or something at the strip club. Aaron is, therefore, entirely superfluous to the film, only here because the first film had a reporter lady, so this one has to, too. As bad in many ways as the two non-canon sequels, the original non-canon sequels, mm-hmm. two and three are, the original reporter is carried over from the first movie. Her and Luke just recast because Van Damme's not in it. She is trying to get the secret of the Unicel program. Right. So she's going around, she's investigating, and action happens because they're uncovering stuff and being targeted. So you have the action guy helping her, and she's also doing something, too. Right. And she's doing things like, I think she's involved in tricking the main villain. She gets a broadcast arrangement or something like that, so that his gloating about the program is actually live on air. Right. Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. But then she's investigating the whole thing, so she's active in the plot. She adds purpose to the plot, and her skill set actually is of use in the film. In this one, it's like, we added a reporter. We don't need her for anything, but we added a reporter, you know? Yeah. Frankly, they're not using her, so having her there actively hurts the film, because it has to spend so much time introducing her and building her relationship with Luke, which is time that they could have used for, say, giving the film an actual plot. Yes, very true. I don't want to sound like the movie is hopeless. Hmm. It has some good general concepts. The acting's not bad at all. Van Damme surprised me at times, as I said. Michael Jai White does a good job of playing a badass. 
computerized warrior. Mm-hmm. He never loses sight of the fact that he's a computer acting human. Yeah. Which is like, it's a neat distinction that he manages to make. Yeah. The action is generally quite good. There's some fun ideas for action scenes, like the bayou chase and the ending fight has, has some good plotting to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a bit too fun with oddly comedic moments, like with Goldberg in particular, mm-hmm. and some scenes like the hospital orderlies fight that are blatantly just put in to highlight that they've got a pro wrestler in the film. They do at least use Goldberg better than First Daughter used DDP. Goldberg is prominent in this film. Oh, yeah. Perhaps too prominent, since he gets the final true fight scene of the movie above the film's actual main villain. (laughs) Yes. His performance is not bad, though it does feel, as we've noted, that he wasn't given clear direction on whether he's supposed to be a cocky soldier or a robotic killing machine. So he varies between those really jarringly. It'd be one thing if that was a plot point, that he normally had personality, but sometimes Seth would like creepily shut him down and control him directly or something. Yeah. But it feels more like they just gave him lines to say and didn't tell him how to deliver them. Yeah, because Seth is always in control, it seems like. Seth says, no, don't do this, go here instead. But he also makes quips while doing the thing he's told to do. Yeah. He is quite good in his action scenes, though. And at least he got fight scenes. Yes, exactly. Poor DDP. I know, right? Yeah, I didn't hate Universal Soldier The Return, but I can't really say that I liked it that much either. It's like, it's a template for an action film, an outline that doesn't have the details and the story beats really filled in. Mm-hmm. It can be fun, yeah. but while the action's fine, it's just not enough to carry the viewing experience. Yeah, it's a fun little oddity. And it's neat seeing people like White and Goldberg really in their physical prime doing this kind of stuff, and Van Damster really holding his own here. So it's nice to see from that regard, but yeah, if you go under expecting any more than Hayes' movie with lots of fights in the explosions, you're not going to get any out of it. And there's enough that you'll think you're going to get it, and then you don't, which makes it worse. Yeah, there's levels of action movies. There's the really bad ones where, you know, the action's just terrible, nothing works right, and they just suck in general. Yeah, yeah. At the other end of the scale, there's things like well-developed, well-choreographed action films that also manage to develop their characters. And yeah. there's interesting twists to the tale, interesting revelations, you know, something that makes the movie about more than just the kicking and punching and shooting. There's reasons why movies like, say, Die Hard, for instance. Right, yeah. People associate, they think of Die Hard and they get John McClane. They get the character, what he went through and all these right. things. In contrast, there's movies like Commando. I love Commando because it's so dumb and ridiculous his name is john matrix for god's sakes yes i don't think of that character again i just remember this movie where Arnie says quips and shoot people yeah for die hard you remember the character and the things he did yes for commando you remember some of the stunts that happened but that's it mm-hmm, exactly this is more commando but with less interesting quips yeah sure it's is that b to b minus grade action movie i think it's mm-hmm. not you know c or z great or something oh there's definitely worse action. there's definitely oh, way yeah. worse action movies than i've seen a lot of them sadly but it's definitely in that that second to third tier of action film where it's just the action scenes there's nothing deeper than that but at least the action scenes are done fine like i said it's basically the 80s stage-based video game with a couple lines of dialogue between the action stages mm-hmm. this is that type of video game in movie form pretty much yeah so, Match of the Night and MVP. So, in keeping with what we said in First Daughter, we are saying for Match of the Night, it doesn't have to be something we called a match. Yeah. It can be any action scene in the movie. Mm. So, what's your Match of the Night, Al? I mean, if you per camp value and just, like, random ridiculousness, Goldberg randomly fighting security guards is pretty hilarious. Yeah. But if I'm being objectively honest, the best one has to be the final one with 
Luke and Seth, where they really go all out in this. As much as, at least don't know what the path the plot is, mm-hmm. it's as much build up to a fight as you really get in the movie. So, yeah. It's a fun use of wires and silliness. That's the right amount for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement on that. I'm going to go with the battle between Seth and Luke Devereaux at the Unisol complex as well. It does have some problems, particularly how Luke just doesn't seem to get meaningfully worn down over the fight and can still pull off big stunts and strike combos despite getting beat up by something multiple times stronger than a human and flying through multiple plate glass windows. Yeah. And the wire work doesn't quite fit in. But overall, I liked the flow of the fight. It escalated nicely and is built around good prop use, both guys showing off some impressive martial arts talent and a bunch of intricate kicks. And I got a sense of story and strategy from that fight that I just didn't get from other action scenes in the Mm -hmm. film. You can tell that both of them have certain plans that they're trying to execute in the fight. There's moments that happen that get built to appropriately, like the laser table bit and Luke repeatedly trying for the gun and Seth dodging around shots until Luke shoots something else with the gun that causes Seth's defeat. So. There's a good flow and good strategy sense to the fight that makes it the best in the film easily. Absolutely, yeah. I do also like the hospital orderly scene, but that's just comedic gold, not necessarily match of the night. Exactly, yeah. MVP? Um, for me, I think I think with Michael J. White, I thought he really helped the material they gave him. Mm-hmm. And even with brief glimpses, seeing him really sort of show off what he can do in the fight scenes is nice. Like a normal wrestling show, being involved in the Madison Knight does help your grading here. Certainly. And he has, even if it becomes silly, he, they give him an arc here where he comes to life and then, you know, all the stuff happens. It's less the writing, it's definitely him making everything better, I think, by his presence. Yeah, the fact that he elevates the dialogue that isn't that great, but he makes it something that you yeah. can kind of get into that really is nice. It narrowly edges out Goldberg for just really standing out in in both wrong and right ways in this mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, being honest, critiquing is definitely white. Uh, for me, I, I, I definitely agree with that take, but I'm going to go with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Okay. He mostly strikes a nice balance throughout the film, looking like a talented fighter, but one that's outclassed in terms of strength and speed by the enhanced unisoles he's facing. It does slip up a few times in that portrayal, but it largely maintains it, especially when it's most important. Seth fights, Romeo fights, that sort of yeah. thing. I appreciated his willingness to be on the losing end of a lot of fights. That's actually quite unusual for 90s action movies in my experience. I think I said this while we were watching, but picture this movie starring Steven Seagal. <laughs> yeah, There's no. no way that happens. No. He beats every Unisol in like three moves. Yeah, exactly. Van Damme recognized that he needed to look weaker than his opponents to build to bigger victories. And that's really important for an action film. Add to that a few rather nice portrayals of subtle emotions, like when he has to shoot Unisol Maggie. Mm-hmm. And he does a nice job overall, I think. Yeah. Just as they tied back to wrestling, looking weak to then overcome them is something like people like Flair and Sting do really well. Yeah, the, the best pro wrestlers will have that talent of recognizing how to make their opponent look stronger. Yeah. In part, just because that's a nice thing to do, but in part because if you're going to win that match— or win matches at all with that person mm-hmm. at any point along the line, you look better if they looked stronger before yeah. you beat them. Part of me feels really weird comparing a pro wrestler to Jean-Claude Van Damme and not being Rob Van Damme. <laughs> that is true. But, you know, in this case, it fits. Yeah. And that wraps up our review of Universal Soldier The Return. 
If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to IMDb for casting and production information and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, taking after one of the TV films of the Unisol franchise, we've got some unfinished business. We wrapped up our Road Wild series with the 1999 show, but we've been wondering about the show that replaced Road Wild in 2000, Mm -hmm. New Blood Rising. Our time is now. Yes, WCW, and your time is also short. Yes. Will New Blood Rising exceed the show that it replaced? Well, we've got Judy Bagwell on a forklift, so what's your guess, audience? Yeah. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy unisawing. <laughs> Heidi Schwann has a pretty small career. Or excuse me, let me go back. Heidi Schwann. <laughs> I'm saying bad. Heidi Schwann as the.